BBC Five Live. Someone today suggested you should host the BAFTAs as Werner Herzog. Did they? Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm pitching him for that. <laughs> Imagine the whole, the whole show <laughs> of kind of. Next, we have the best supporting actor. Actors are always supporting the supporting directors. Um, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I think that a lot of people won't expect to hear Werner again in this year because it's so last year. But Werner is every year. Every year is Werner year. Uh, <laughs> everyone's a Werner. Everyone's a, every, everyone's a Werner. <laughs> Werner takes it all. Uh, I can't think of any. Can you think of any other way? This should be your application to host the BAFTAs as in the, in, in the character of Werner Herzog. Just a list of puns on a bit of paper and just present this. And how can they how can they turn you down? How can they turn down Werner? I could switch with Werner. Actually, this is, I think there's quite a few people who do Werner now. I don't feel kind of as unique as I once did. Only one on this show. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not going to try. Have we started? Is this... Oh, blimey, we've started. Happy New Year! Hooray. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Look, okay, as the um, um, Scots expert in the room, um, me right? Okay, yeah, yes. Well, it is me, but I'm just trying to make you feel better. Hogmanay is is that New Year's Eve or is it the Eve before New Year's? What is what is Hogmanay? Hogmanay is New Year's Eve, and it is a word that is something that I grew up with. As a, you know, any any Scot listening to this show knows that it's never New Year's Eve, it's Hogmanay, but the, the etymology of the word, the roots of the word, are lost in the mists of time somewhere. I mean, it's, it's something that's been around in this form, I think, since the 1600s. And the, so it's made up of three words. It's hog, which is like a pig, and right. man. Hog, and, and, and a knee. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I never thought of it like that. I uh, was imagined it would be some more complicated you're explanation. Welcome. But no, it's New Year's Eve. And it's, it's you know, we do it properly in, in Scotland. And what is there a typical thing to? I mean, I've got, of course, I know all of this. This is just for you know the listeners uh, who uh, may not know. Um, what is the celebration for Hogmanay? Where how's it? How does it differ? I mean, there's more whiskey involved normally, <laughs> and you sing Old Lang Syne. But then a lot of people sing Old Lang Syne uh, on New Year's Eve celebrations everywhere. Because I mean, when I was a kid on TV. Was it Andy Stewart? Was it Andy Stewart? He yes, the White Heather Club, yes. Yeah, that's and right. that used to be the kind of, you know, that was your your countdown to midnight. That's uh, right, that's now right. Now it's Jules Holland and, 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 and two hundred other Well, and in but... Scotland it's Jackie Bird, excuse me, at the Corn Exchange in Glasgow. Jackie Bird. Yeah, and Phil Cunningham and Ali Bain playing, you know, a bit, bit of fiddle, a bit, uh, bit of squeeze box. Every year. A bit of accordion. Yeah, it's, tr- it's terrific. And how long have they been doing it? Oh goodness, a long time. I mean, not as long as I've been alive, but this is this is something that is a regular, you know, fixture yeah, of Hogmanay. Twenty-two or something, aren't you? Thirty-six this year, have you know? <sighs> okay, fair enough. Um, so, so, but but with the, you know, <laughs> with the face of a man in his mid fifties. <laughs> uh, uh, in acting, that's called a range, <laughs> right? That's having a range. Um, so we are going to be uh, talking to Martin McDonough, hearing from Martin McDonough, who I interviewed uh, just before Christmas for Three Billboards. That's coming up in the show, um, plus a whole bunch of reviews as usual. Star Wars is the number one film. That's not going to be a surprise to anyone. Yes. So uh, what's your take on the? I mean, do you love it? Do you hate it? I do love it, and I love it in this kind of... Slightly... Have you written that you loved it? I have, yes. Are was, you in a... the pay of Disney? Of course, of course. I mean, you know, at last this scandal has been blown wide open. The, the funny thing about The Last Jedi, the criticisms of The Last Jedi, is they kind of split into three groups. 
there's a group of people who were instantly took up against the film for ideological reasons and the idea that, you know, no longer can you rely on a, a white male to be the hero. You know, there are heroes from all kind of different backgrounds. And the fact that that's slightly connected to this is that Star Wars has always been about lineage and destiny. And without getting too spoilery, you know, The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi have kind of questioned whether that is should be the case anymore. So I think you can kind of discount any ideological quibbles at a stroke. I'm not interested in those criticisms. They just, you know, they get with the times. You know, this is where the franchise is moving. You also have a group of completely legitimate criticisms where people are saying, you know, I don't find the humour particularly funny. Mm. I think it's, 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 it's you know, there's, there's too much of it. It's tonally kind of a bit strange. Structurally, the film is odd. There's this idea that the casino sequence is pointless. I don't believe the casino sequence is pointless at all. I think it actually wrong foots you beautifully because you're so used to in blockbuster films being drip fed this okay so this is important and this is important it's gonna be important for all the usual reasons and the end of the casino sequence you're kind of like what Mm. that was to take us to this point but to me the fact that a star wars film can still surprise me in those ways while feeling fundamentally like star wars is incredibly exciting and that's the third group of criticisms which is the kind of gray area where these things would be enjoyed in a film that wasn't Star Wars, but because it's Star Wars, it doesn't work. Like the humour, for example, it would be fine in a Marvel film, but not in a Star Wars film. And th- this is where it kind of gets a bit funny because, you know, the franchise, Disney paid $4 billion for this property, which they have, by the way, already made back. They made it back last weekend with the, the, the Last Jedi box office receipts just pushed it over the line. But they fully intend to milk this thing and milk it and milk it and milk it. And in order to do that, they can't just spend their lives appealing to the last generation of Star Wars fans saying we're going to give you the stuff from your childhood over and over and over again because we know you want to feel nostalgic and cuddly about it at Christmas time. They know that the fan base that's going to drive this franchise forward are people who are kids now and they're going to be the people that are going to watch it for the next 10 years and the 10 years after that and they're going to bring their kids along possibly if they can sustain the momentum and keep the franchise running that long which by the way I'm sure they hope they will do. In order to do that, they have to start changing stuff and they have to start experimenting with what the force is. They have to start experimenting with who can possibly use it. They have to start changing tonally, you know, adapt to uh, what a a new generation would expect from this kind of film. And to me, that's enormously exciting. And there's something really bracing about coming out of a Star Wars film and feeling, do you know what? This wasn't pandering to me and I still really loved it. I mean, I I enjoyed it. It's not my favourite. Um, but it was it felt felt like a Star Wars film. It didn't feel like any other kind of film. Um, I can understand people's kind of issues with, you know, character plot and stuff like that. But uh, these issues of it not being a Star Wars film, I just find very strange. I mean, my son is uh, is twelve, and he loved it. He loved Force Awakens, and he loved this. And in a way, when I showed him, um, you know, a, a New Hope and uh, you know the, the original three, uh, he he didn't connect as well with those as I did when I was his age when I saw them. And that's because of pace and time and editing and the way these things are structured now. To me, one of the most important things tonally with the new films is that they've gone back to this use of practical effects and particularly practical creature effects. Now, I used to, before I was a film critic, I was a puppeteer. And one of... I'm sorry, you were a what? A puppeteer. puppeteer, Was this before the... operator of puppets. Well, before you were a second bassoonist. This was between the bassoon and the films. It was a kind of like it was a, tran- it was a transitional period, I suppose, in my life. You would say. Right. Anyway, I used to work for this um, puppetry company in the Scottish Borders, and 
over Christmas, um, I went to the, the public theatre and kind of caught up with them, see how they were, how they were all doing. And the, basically, in the mid-90s, the son of the founder of the public company went off to work in, in films and he did the, the baby in Trainspotting. That was one oh, of his, the one that crawls on Yeah, exactly, ceiling. exactly. So this kind of really great and kind of eerie and, you know, because it's actually there, a physical, practical presence in the film. Uh, incredibly kind of exciting visual stuff. Um, now, because of the rise of CGI, obviously that, that kind of work fell away for a spell. But now with the return of Star Wars, he is um, working, you know, he's been ushered into the sort of Lucasfilm family and he's doing practical effects, um, creature effects on all of the new films. Sanjeev, he was the Porgs. What? He was the Porgs in The Last Jedi. They were rod puppets and he was actually out on Skellig Michael dressed in the, you know, the kind of green screen airbrush outable suit operating these rod puppet Porgs. I thought they were Or-real. completely CGI. No, no, they're puppets, the practical puppets. Wow. He also, uh, now I'm not going to mention the other puppet that he, he worked on, but he worked on another puppet in the film, which is just incredibly exciting. But he was the Porgs, and to me that's uh, that's pretty special. In what wow, year? That, you can't, you know, how, what did you do this year? Did the Porgs. Yeah. <laughs> what did you do? Nothing. Can't beat it. Um, uh, yes, and they also did my favourite all-time uh, Christmas song, which is Fairy Tale in New York. Um, <laughs> now, I... I'd have to go back to your, your puppeteering thing because yes. I, 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 I'm, I need a picture that's, that's set up here. So what kind of shows were you doing? Well, it's the what kind of I... puppetry, the black light puppetry. So you're dressed in a black, you know, all covering suits, including your face. And there's ultraviolet lights that shine on the puppets and they pick them out while making sure you leave, you know, you, you are basically invisible. Uh, so you're using marionettes, you're using glove puppets, you're using rod puppets, all kinds of puppets you can use in this discipline. And it's something that, you know, in Europe they do really, really well. In Prague there are some great blacklight puppetry theatres. But weirdly, this really old school form of puppetry adapts to CGI incredibly well because you're using practical puppets, but you're airbrushing out the person as if you're clothing them in black over a black background. So, it's, you know, all techniques become new. It's really exciting. So what kind of characters were you? Oh, goodness, everything. I mean, you just kind of, you turn your hand to whatever needs. Well, what, what kind of shows? I mean, can you remember some of the... Yeah, there was, this was the, the, the theatre company's called Purvis's Puppets, and they have this sort of signature show called Pips and Panda, where it's Pips the monkey and Panda the uh, panda. And um, they go on adventures together. And, um, you know, one of the reasons we went... What, what kind of adventures? I mean, uh, Well, at Christmas time, they go to the North Pole to see Father Christmas and, uh, you know, help with present production and all this kind of stuff. They visit Goldilocks and the Three Bears. They sort of sing Agadoo, all this, you know, classic children's stuff. So there was a bit of that, and then there was some more sort of grand fairy tale stuff that we did as well, and there was a Loch Ness monster production as well that I was involved in. The Nessie puppet was enormous, and you know, someone of a kind of Nessie's an, in Loch Ness monster, Nessie the Loch Ness monster, right. yeah. And so someone like me who's rather than of, Elliot of elongated dimensions, yeah. um, you know, that's a, a you know, a, a, you become a real asset to the I like to think an asset to the production because I've got the reach, you know, I've got the range to play Nessie. Well, I'm presuming that wasn't the only reason that you kind of uh, entered the puppetry world. I mean, how did you get, how does one become a puppeteer? Oh, it was, you know, someone knew there was a job going and thought that I might be good for it. And it was just, you know, you hear on the puppetry grapevine. <laughs> is it a real grapevine or is it just kind of it's, somebody controlling it? It's a kind of a very fluffy grapevine that's, you know, you put your hand in the bottom and do that. The grapes sing. And uh, what would you say was your high point? Nessie. With Nessie I mean, it's the, it's the role I was born to play. Did you lie down for that? Were you standing up? I mean, you're everywhere, you know. It changes, you know, moment to moment. You just have to be... And were, were Pip and Panda meeting Nessie? Uh, Pips and Panda, yes. No, 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 no. They are separate production. Pips and Panda skews younger. Yeah. And then Nessie is for, you know, a kind of primary school age or older audience. Did Nessie have a voice? 
Oh, yes. What, what was the voice? Ah, well, now this is where the black light puppetry gets complicated because ah. you don't necessarily perform the voice of the puppet that you're playing. It depends. It's all very fluid. And so you can be playing one character one moment and then through an invisible sleight of hand, the audience doesn't even see you're suddenly operating someone else and someone else is on this puppet. So it's all very mixy-matchy. Right. Did you ever do the voice of Nessie? Uh, no. What was the voice of Nessie? It's kind of like a kind of Scottish uh, Mrs. Doubtfire sort of sounding voice. That's quite comforting, actually, for a monster. Yeah, well, I mean, you don't want to. There's kids in the audience. You don't want some kind of depends on the mad kids. infernal roar. Depends on the kids. Depends on the kids. Sometimes you really want to <laughs> you want to scare them. Shut up. Oh, okay. That's that's enough of that. That's gonna, that was terrifying. Sit still. Here's the show. Welcome to the show. It's Robbie, fly me to the bassoon. Colin and Sanjeev, not him again, Baskar. Sitting in for Mark and Simon. We're here until four o'clock. Robbie, Happy New Year. And a Happy New Year to you. Uh, and what is the cutoff point for saying Happy New Year? Somebody wished it to me in February once, which I, it was just, just led to an awkward moment. I think if you've not seen the person that year, you can surely do it any time. So the yeah, 31st like, of if December. If it's the first encounter with that yeah. person that year. In person. It's, it's, it's technically, they, they can't get you on a technicality because it is a new year to all intents and purposes. Yeah, but it just there's a point at which it just sounds sarcastic, doesn't it? <laughs> if you're saying it in November. I mean, it, you don't know if it's early for next year or the previous year or... There's got to be a cut-off point. There's, I mean, maybe people can let us know. I mean, I did ask uh, this question on Twitter and I got some very interesting replies. But if you've got an interesting uh, response on that, then do let us know. Of course, we're here to talk about films. Uh, Robbie, and the films that we're looking at today include? Yes, we're talking about All the Money in the World, Hostiles, Brad's Status, Renegades, Walk With Me and Jupiter's Moon. And we also have an interview with a very special guest. Martin McDonough, uh, the star director and writer of Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which uh, stars Francis McDormand, Woody Harrelson and Sam Rockwell, and we'll hear that interview uh, with Martin in about half an hour. And if you want to join in with the show, you can get in touch with us in all the usual ways, which is email mayo at bbc.co.uk, text 85058, and you'll also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Wittertainment. Now, just before we start the UK box office top 10, Molly's Game, which Mark reviewed before Christmas, came out on Monday, and uh, some of you have seen it. Um, I've got a couple of... Uh, Emails here. That's right. Uh, it will officially chart next week. Right. Because it's not been out for a full week yet. So I think it's, it'll be the opening weekend plus four days of previews. Right. There we go. Uh, so this is from Niall Kelly, who says, On New Year's Day, my wife, Mairead, and I went along to see the latest film from my favourite writer, Aaron Sorkin. As a huge fan of everything that Sorkin has written, apart from the lacklustre Steve Jobs, I was looking forward to the classic Sorkin tropes, from the walk and talk to the 250 words a minute dialogue and people talking passionately about the most mundane of topics. The fact that this was Sorkin's directorial debut made this film a must-see. I deliberately didn't read too much about Molly's Game in advance, but knew it was about poker, the feds and the mafia. Now I know about as much as poker, as much as poker as Brad Brad, but this isn't a film about poker. In this, I'm just reading it as it is. Actually, people can interpret it in the way they want. <laughs> he knows about poker as much as Brad Brad. Brad Brad, the yeah. famous uh, world class poker player. So good, they named winner him twice. of the poker World Series last year, I believe. There you Brad go. Brad. Well done. In the same way that Jaws wasn't a film about a big shark, it's a film about human behaviour, the good and the bad. The script didn't disappoint; was razor sharp with one-liners flying about left, right, and centre. The film's running time of two hours twenty minutes flew by and never once felt laboured, and it was funny. 
easily passing the six and ten laugh test and funnier than most Hollywood comedies. The entire cast was solid throughout, with the standout being Idris Elba. There was also one fantastic scene between Kevin Costner and Jessica Chastain, which tied the whole film together perfectly. If you weren't a fan of Sorkin before this, then Molly's Game probably won't change your thoughts on him, but for a Sorkin devotee, this film ticked all the boxes. Superb. Thank you, Niall. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. It's, it's Sorkin doing Sorkin, which is really the only thing that he can do. People get tired of him for that, but I think he's, you know, he's writing a film once every couple of years. I think that that, that makes it to release. So, it, to, to me, I don't mind that he keeps doing the same thing. What I think is really interesting about Molly's Game is because it's the first of his scripts that he's directed. It kind of punctured for me anyway this myth that Sorkin is the defining voice of any film he does. So, The Social Network or Steve Jobs or Charlie Wilson's War. These are really. Uh, Aaron Sorkin films. It's not a David Fincher film you're watching, it's an Aaron Sorkin film. And I think because Molly's Game, to me, felt slightly visually untidy, it did feel like the work of, of someone who was directing at a level at which they should perhaps have tried to work their way up to slightly first. It kind of punctured that myth, I think. So, you, you know, for me, a film like The Social Network, you are hearing Aaron Sorkin's voice loud and clear, but it is masterminded by Fincher. And the same with uh, with Steve Jobs, which I know our correspondent wasn't such a fan of. But, you know, that to me felt like a three-way joust between Danny Boyle and Aaron Sorkin and Michael Fassbender, all three voices coming through loud and clear. So I was really interested in it for that reason. But yeah, I completely agree. It's this like jumping onto a roundabout and not being able to jump off. It's already pelting around at full speed. Well, interesting enough, uh, this is from uh, Andrew Laycock, who says uh, uh, the film started at a rip-roaring pace that didn't cease. The 140-minute running time wasn't exactly kind to my hangover, but the last 30 minutes was worth it thanks to a movie-stealing scene from Kevin Costner, which made the air particularly dusty from where I was sat. Like any Aaron Sorkin script, you're guaranteed your ten laughs and then some, and Molly's Game is no exception. Jessica Chastain was mesmerising, Idris Elba lent solid support, but I couldn't quite work out what accent he was going for. Boston, maybe. As a semi-casual poker player, I felt the poker sequences were well done and easy to follow for muggles of the sport. Overall, great start to 2018, and I'd be surprised if I saw 10 better films this year. Um, thank you, Andrew. I mean, I thought it was great. I th- the amount of information from any kind of um, Aaron Sorkin script always comes at you. It kind of reminded me tonally uh, at the beginning of The Big Short, you know, in, in that there was a lot of information, a lot of technical information about poker, which actually you don't really need to know because it's it's not really about and skiing as well. These wacky cutaways to surgery, surgical procedures, and things going on because Molly Bloom was a skier before she was a a poker hostess. It's a remarkable true story. I mean, it really is, and I think that also the way that he put it together in terms of its pace and its edit. I thought just kept it exciting for that. I didn't notice the the running time, as as our correspondents have said, uh, as well. And also, this was a great use of voiceover, as well. I think voiceovers work best when they are witty, when they're not just exposition. Yes, and there was and, a lot of wit to it. And and we can we'll talk about this in relation to one of this week's films as well. But the fact that if it's a first person voiceover, if it's your lead character that's talking you want to be able to squeeze something in between their voice and the voice of the film so you don't feel as if you're just being spoken to by you know by that person directly. You can kind of, the film's putting a little extra spin on it and making you, they're perhaps revealing things about themselves that they don't realise they're revealing. This enormous monologue about skiing at the start, for example, um, you know, she says at the end of it, none of this matters, none of this skiing stuff is important. But of course it's there because it is important and it shows you the way that she can make micro-analytical decisions while she is barreling down the side of a hill, obviously a real hill there, metaphorical hills later on when she's ploughing, you know, headlong into some disaster and she's having to make judgment calls very, very quickly. So it's so I love the fact that Sorkin, he really, really understands how to do that stuff and agree the Costner scene on the park bench at the end. It's I mean, it's classic Sorkinese. It's very 
stagey and it would never, ever happen in real life, but it moves you and it entertains you. Lovely. Okay, well, hopefully that'll be in the top 10 uh, next week. Top 10 this week. Number 10, it's Murder on the Orient Express. Still hanging around. Nine weeks going strong. £23.9 million to date. So this has been a big success. For me, I, I would say the only thing I would add to Mark has covered it very thoroughly in the past is that the all-star cast, which has, I think, been so instrumental in getting audiences into cinemas, for me is slightly the film's Achilles heel. I would have rather have seen a, a cast of character actors take on these roles rather than these sort of leads that aren't quite leads and you expect more from these, you know, this particular cast than you perhaps get from any of them individually, with the exception of Branagh, who I think is a terrific Poirot, and I would happily go back and watch Death on the Nile or whatever one they're going to do next. Or just his moustache. At number nine, it's Wonder. At number eight, it's Tiger Zindahe, which is a Bollywood release. We've got a couple of uh, uh, correspondence about that. This is from Pratish, who says, This sequel to Ekta Tiger reunites us with Bollywood superstar Salman Khan playing a spy called Tiger. They have simplified the plot and left out the complexities of Middle East politics. Basic plot is that Indian and Pakistani nurses being held hostage in the Middle East and our Indian spy rescues, rescues them with the help of a Pakistani spy played by Katrina Kaif. It is conventional commercial Bollywood fare and is unapologetic about its, its silliness. It's not meant to be taken seriously and is to be enjoyed for the masala film it is. It is inspired by true events, the rescue of nurses in 2014, but mainly it is Bai's, Salman's film. Leave your brains at home and you will enjoy it. Um, thank you. And this is uh, from Shirley Bond, who says, Hello to the mighty subs. I like that. I thought it only right I should tell you of one of the best times I've had in, in a cinema for some time. The film I speak of is Tiger Zindahe, a brilliant action-adventure film starring the always-watchable Salman Khan. The film follows on from the 2012 film, film Ikta Tiger, as we've just learned, and continues to prove that when it comes to big action set pieces, Indian cinema can match anything Hollywood has to offer. Already a huge hit overseas, I hope people can find a way of seeing it, as it might change a few people's idea of what world cinema is capable of. Happy New Year to everyone and hello to Jason Isaacs. Thank you, Shirley. At uh, number six, we have Ferdinand, uh, which is an animation. Oh, can I just jump in number seven? Oh, I beg uh, your was, pardon. No, I mean, there's, look, you've every reason to want to gloss over this. Number Thank seven you. somehow is uh, Daddy's Home 2, uh, which has been hanging around for six weeks and has made 13.5 million. The less said about that, the better, I think. Thank you. And my Freudian slip, which was to move on to Ferdinand, which is a, a, an animation which has come out. And we've got this from John Weller, who says, Ferdinand, perfectly affable yet mediocre kids fair that more or less does what it says on the tin. It had its moments. It passed the six laugh test for both myself and my almost six year old child. Some of the voice acting was distinctly second rate. Be warned that uh, two thirds of the way through the film, there were a few frantic whispered conversations between parents and children about abattoirs and what they are and why the balls might be in there. Still, the small, noisy, code-breaking audience we saw it seemed to enjoy it, but the child hasn't mentioned it again since we left the auditorium. That's Ferdinand at number six. At number five, there's some film called uh, Paddington 2. Yes, I gather there's <clears> you <throat> got some sort of connection to this. I have a little connection to it. I mean, Paddington 2, for me, is everything that Ferdinand isn't. Ferdinand is perfectly accomplished family animation. You know, it, there's obviously skill has gone into it. There's actually a really, really good uh, sequence in it which would almost work as a standalone short film with a bull in a china shop. And it's a beautiful little piece of physical comedy. But besides that, the film is just kind of passing the time. You know, it's a, it's a holiday release designed to get the kids out of the house and, and seeing something. Paddington 2, on the other hand, is, is completely different. It's, it's just... To me, and the, the the fact it's so successful is really encouraging. It's been around for eight weeks, made thirty seven point five million, which is terrific. Fifteen percent box office take up on last week as well, so more popular this week than it was last week, which is great news. I just think the fact that this 
these two films now have such a clearly defined comic style that is really like nothing else around. And it's it, they're funny in very difficult ways because you've got slapstick using a CG character in a real world setting, which is very, very, very difficult to pull off, when, particularly when you've got real world cast members around. As you perhaps know from your you, the, the, the interlude where Paddington is cleaning your back uh, garden window, the patio mm-hmm. doors, you know, it's just to have that connection between uh, a real actor and a CG character is very, very difficult. You know, you see that failing so many times and yet Paddington 2 gets it right. There's, there's so much, you know, the humour is based on decency and politeness in this really delightful, charming way that's, that's again, very difficult to pull off. I mean, when you were filming with Paddington, did you have, was there someone standing in on set rubbing their bottom on a piece of glass for, for you to draw on? <laughs> that sounds like a very leading uh, <laughs> question, actually. I don't think I should declare anything about my personal life. <laughs> Actually, I mean, across the film, that we did it in different ways. I mean, the, the thing, the, the bit with the uh, uh, cleaning the windows was that you had uh, a, a sort of Paddington model there. So you, you had the face there, so you kind of knew who you were looking at, uh, in effect. And then they would have to replace that and put, you know, little markers and things like that. But actually, in that particular scene, it was the director who uh, was basically shimmying <laughs> the other side of the class <laughs> and uh he shimmied rather well i have to say and uh and very similar to what they ended up using with 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 paddington um uh, with with the cg bear but it was uh it changed throughout i mean occasionally you had people who were kind of uh, in a costume that, that that particularly for movement it's very difficult to get that because you, you know everyone's particularly if you've got several characters your eyes have all got to be at the same place and then if you've got nothing there, to, to try to match that can be quite tricky. Uh, but also they, they use a, um, a silver ball as well, uh, which reflects all the light. So when they do the CG, they can reflect all the light on the character, either in the eyes or on the fur or any on buttons and stuff like that. So it's quite a laborious process. But um, here's a little thing that people may not know. Um, we shot, there were three different endings for Paddington, and we shot two of them. And uh, they kind of went with not quite either of those. And actually, I think the ending that they've gone with, I think, is brilliant. I think it's, it's the beautiful. Best one. Yeah. And uh, and but that was, you know, that process of finessing the film and the script was something that went on throughout. It happened on set, and it was happening kind of afterwards as well in in post production. Uh, we have a, um, uh, an email here from Emily Tucker who says, as a new listener. You're very welcome, Emily. Welcome. I am apprehensive to email, but felt compelled to make contact after listening to the one negative review of Paddington 2 featured recently. Um, do you remember this? The, the I do, yes, vividly. Uh, I'm nothing short of shock to hear the scathing tones with which Paddington 2 was described. My reasoning I will explain below. I'm a primary school teacher, and in the run-up to Christmas, our school treated pupils and staff alike to a cinema trip. Um, any person working in education will know that anything capable of entertaining 100 children for 20 minutes is a godsend. So Paddington 2's ability to keep a captive audience for well over an hour strikes me as nothing short of a miracle. Every single child in my class sat in complete awe for the whole movie. Not one trip out for toilets, drinks, I'm bored, which is completely unheard of. Aside from witnessing the stunning effect of the movie on children, for which reason I would strongly recommend any person charged with childcare to book a visit to Paddington 2, I myself loved the movie. Hugh Grant was the perfect baddie and I especially enjoyed the Notting Hill era pictures of himself featured in his character's house. Not a dry eye was to be found amongst the teaching staff at the end of the movie and I can't imagine a better way of encouraging a festive but not too hyper mood in a large group of children and exhausted adults. Oh, no, wait. 
he is a weirdo, is a favourite line that's found its way into the playground, which is no problem with me. In conclusion, the person who didn't enjoy Paddington 2 needs a good, hard stare. Thank you, Emily, from North London. Now, I had a question, actually. This is about the code. Okay. And this may be one for Mark and Simon to kind of uh, uh, to ponder. <clears throat> and here was my issue. So I went to, to, to see Paddington 2 uh, with uh, a bunch of kids, my son and a bunch of kids. Now, at the end of the film... When the credits started, people started to get up and leave. And here is my kind of a code predicament. Would it be breaking the code for me to have stood up as I wanted to, but didn't, and just shout at everyone, sit down, there's more to come. I should know I'm in it. Well, maybe not the last bit, but, the, you know, that's a bit self-aggrandizing. But I don't know whether that would be to break the code or not, because in a sense, it's still the film. It's still going on. The credits are still rolling, but they're walking out the door. Yeah, I don't know why you would want to break the spell of particularly a film like Paddington 2. The other one recently was Call Me By Your Name, the Luca Guadagnino film, where the end credits begin to play over the final shot. And the idea is that time is moving on, but he's still locked in this moment. And you're supposed to share this moment with it. You know, if that's how the director's rigged the film to play, I don't know why you would want to kind of stampede out. I mean, unless, you know, there's a babysitter or, you know, a car parking ticket or something very, very important. But if, you know, all other concerns aside, you should surely just want to linger in the world of the film for just a couple minutes longer. Well, until you get to the scrolling kind yes, of, you right. know, you know the, who the assistants were, at least until that point. Anyway, that may be one for, for uh, Mark and Simon to sort out. I have to say that the, the way in which the film connects with even a very young audience, as, as our correspondent was saying, has it's endlessly impressed me. My four-year-old son saw it um, about two months ago when it originally came out in the cinemas. And he still, last week, was talking about, I mean, he was remembering moments from the film and he was helpless with laughter as he was describing them and you know not into he doesn't you know uh the names of the characters or anything but he he called um, it's, it's dr jaffrey just tell him <laughs> dr jaffrey that's the name of the character but the fact that this stuck with him through all of the you know nonsense bombardment videos and things that he's watched since then and these performances are still you know rattling around in there and making him laugh i just think it's wonderful and it's so difficult to do that the um the news that Simon Farnaby, who wrote the Paddington films, is now adapting the Enid Blyton Faraway Tree books for Studio Canal as well, I think is, is, is really, really encouraging because those are books that, um, you know, I remember reading them as a kid. I enjoyed them very much, but I'm aware that they will require some sensitive and thoughtful updating and adaptation to make them work in a film today. I cannot think of a better writer to do that job than Simon Farnaby, considering what he has done uh, with Paddington too. Good luck to Simon Farnaby. And Paddington 2 opens in America tomorrow. So uh, um, to our American listeners, if you have a view on that, then uh, do let the programme know. At number four, it's Pitch Perfect 3. Yes, I'm completely on the same page as Mark on this. It just continues this plunging trajectory of the franchise. The original Pitch Perfect, great, something new, something exciting. Second Pitch Perfect, not so good. And then this one just kind of right down to rock bottom. It's the idea that you would need to move the Bellas somewhere new and have them doing this world tour and introduce action scenes like an exploding yacht. It just seems to kind of miss the the point of why these films were fresh and different in the first place. Uh, this is from James Stewart. Not that one. Pitch Perfect 3 was so bad, I'm thinking of starting a petition to have it removed from the series. I didn't go in with high expectations, so the bar was set quite low, nailed to the floor of a cellar, and it still failed to get close to meeting them. Even my wife, who loves the series, thought it was dross. There you go put that on a poster that's uh number four pitch perfect and speaking of dross <laughs> number three 
<laughs> the Greatest Showman. What yes. did you think of now, it? Now, look, this is the only new release on this week's chart, £4.7 million since the Boxing Day release, which is pretty good. Um, I think it's 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 particularly impressive because the film itself is so dreadful. I don't think it really gleaned many positive reviews. I know there were some voices out there who disagreed with the, the general critical consensus. And perhaps it's the kind of film... Uh, that plays to audiences better than it does critics. I don't know. I thought it was completely awful. I think the idea of doing a musical about P.T. Barnum, who is a huckster and a fraudster and a con man, a very, very interesting character. If you are going to recast him as this champion of the oppressed, as the film shamelessly tries to do, that's interesting. But you have to somehow find a way to sell it. And because the film has him doing the same stuff as he did in the real world, you know, hiring, uh, you know, basically creating a freak show is what he did. Uh, but it doesn't find a way to explain why he's doing that that makes you think, oh, yeah, actually, he really does care for these people and he wants the best for them and he wants them to be able to live uh, who they are, you know, in the spotlight. I just was totally not sold on it. Now, the. The songs, we can argue about the songs. That's more a question of taste. You can say that these are good songs. You would be wrong, but the, you know, the, there's an argument could be made. But the simple fact that it will not make sense of the P.T. Barnum character or the Zac Efron character either, I just think it's kind of objectively bad. Uh, well, here's, here's a couple of uh, uh, emails. Um, hello there, chaps. This is from Beth Friend. Hello there, Beth. Saw The Greatest Showman on New Year's Day. After having listened to Mark's and several other damning reviews, I knew I was in for a brainless romp, but... What can I say? The glittery trailer seduced me. The Greatest Showman is a muddled marzipan lump of a film. It takes a half-hearted stab at addressing issues of tolerance, diversity and understanding, but none of the freak characters are sufficiently developed, most are unnamed, and they all end up serving as props for the pretty people. What a shame considering the elephantine effort that went into getting it made and the searing poignancy of the songwriting duo's previous musical, Dear Evan Hansen. Let's hope they learn from their mistakes with this one. Happy 2018. This is from Peter Stone, who says, As a paramedic locked in the first aid room of the church, I'm kept busy... I have to read that again. As a paramedic locked in the first aid room of the church. The Church of Wittertainment, I think. Oh, thank goodness for that. I just thought literally he's been locked in and why isn't anyone letting him out? I've, I'm kept busy by all the Wittertainment-related injuries. As such, I do not often get out to the cinema. However, my family set me free over Christmas to see The Greatest Showman. This I'm recapping the paramedic locked in the church thing. I'm thinking it's real. <laughs> um, the film itself is utterly safe. No risks taken at all. The characters are pretty much two-dimensional. None of the various plot strands are explored all that much. Barnum is given a bland wash to take away any ambiguity that exists in his psyche. That said, my wife, my 12-year-old daughter and, all, and I all loved it. Yes, it had all the flaws that Mark discussed last week, but I still left the cinema with a smile on my face and the soundtrack has been on our generic voice control speaker device ever since. I doubt it will win any awards for either historical accuracy or cinematic greatness, but does that matter if it made me and others happy? That's a good point uh, from Peter. And also, uh, finally on this uh, for now, uh, this is from Amy who says, I'm emailing you to strongly disagree with Mark about The Greatest Showman. I believe that the songs are amazing. I downloaded the whole soundtrack when I got home and that the acting, lip-syncing, is very good. And Michelle Williams, who Mark said didn't have enough screen time to make an impression, I thought gave one of the best performances out of all of them. Also, you didn't mention the child actors, singers, who are amazing and are obviously very talented. Maybe we saw a completely different movie, but both my mum and I loved it. I would like to say that I agree with you about Jumanji. Both of them are in my top five of the year. Regards Amy 12 and three quarters, which neatly takes us on to number two and Jumanji. Yes, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, which I think is a really, it's, it's a smart enough remake of the original Jumanji to make me, or sequel really, because it, it picks up 
um, many, many years after the original film left off with the board game having been converted into a video game, still sucking people in and in, in, into this kind of real world jungle environment. I think it's smart enough to make me wish it was smarter. I think the body swap stuff is handled very amusingly indeed. It just didn't feel like what they were doing within the video game was actually that video game like to me. Uh, no, I really enjoyed it, though. I thought it was great. It's funny. I, I like I think, the Freaky yeah. Friday kind of uh, Tropic Thunderousness of it. Uh, was good fun. And at number, of co- number one, of course, it's Star Wars The Last Jedi. Of course, which has made £7.9 million pounds this week. And it's bringing it to a total of £68 million, which puts this talk of a backlash into perspective, I think. Well, here's uh, some correspondence we've got. This is from uh, uh, Dr. Alexander Tag. It says, hi, super subs. I have an idea about why The Last Jedi has rubbed many people up the wrong way. I believe it is down to a mismatch between the filmmaking styles of J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson. Abrams is a master at creating intrigue. Lost is a great example of this. The plot of Force Awakens isn't the most original, with many, somewhat accurately in my view, calling it a rehash of New Hope. New Hope. Yet Abrams doesn't... Abrams, a big pardon, doesn't need a complex original plot when he's able to introduce interesting and engaging characters without actually telling you much about them. This allows fans to have fun theorising till the cows come home, and this helps to build huge anticipation for answers. I think the reason fans aren't happy with The Last Jedi is that it appears that Ryan Johnson simply isn't interested in the questions posed. The plot of Johnson's film is far more original, the film is well-made and engaging, yet The Last Jedi doesn't give fans of Disney's first foray any closure. The intrigue carefully built by Abrams is not dealt with, and in some cases rather ham-fistedly thrown away. Furthermore, no questions are posed. Johnson's film doesn't really do the one thing Thing a middle film should. It, should. it does not build anticipation for the final chapter. It throws out a lot of what Abrams built without building up new walls of intrigue. I didn't hate The Last Jedi, but I did feel that Abrams understood what a new Star Wars films should do, and Johnson didn't. It seems, though, he simply wanted to show how good a film he could make without understanding that this was a chapter of a bigger story, to use this opportunity to audition for a Marvel film. The New Order wasn't a great film. New Order? Blue Monday, uh, but it was a great Star Wars film. The Last Jedi was a good film, but it was a poor Star Wars film. Thank you, Dr. Alexander Tag. And one more, this is from Matthew Horn. Dear Obi-Wan and Yoda, we can have an argument about who's who later. I was disappointed by how negative the fan reviews have been. They often seem to begin with, I am the biggest long-time fan of Star Wars, but The Last Jedi is a total load of blah, 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 blah. Here's the thing. The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi are not the Star Wars films these fans are looking for. See what he nice. there. Uh, they are after the Star Wars of their childhood, mine too. The new films are the Star Wars for our children to love and remember. I sat in a viewing packed with kids and teens and they loved it. They were in, There were involuntary whoops, laughs, gasps and the occasional code-breaking whisper of that's so cool to anyone nearby. Most tellingly, though, was the total silence towards the end. It was as if we were back in the 70s watching Obi-Wan sacrifice himself. This film hit home the same way Star Wars hit me as a child. Thank you very much. Uh, Matthew, thoughts on those? Yes, look, I, I completely agree with the second one of those emails. I think that this, the, the way in which uh, Ryan Johnson has responded to the questions that are raised by J.J. Abrams uh, is not the way in which we are used to blockbuster filmmaking dealing with these setups and payoffs. You know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, is, is completely built on this. You know, we're going to tease something up in one film. We're going to move it on a little bit in the next film. Build, build, build until the big Avengers showdown, you know, at the end of the, uh, the, the, the chapter or the phase or whatever you want to call it. Now, what Ryan Johnson does, Ryan Johnson, sorry, he does address all of the questions that J.J. Abrams brings up in The Force Awakens, but he doesn't do it in a conservative way. He's prepared to just sweep the pieces uh, off the playing board if he, if he doesn't like how, you know, if, if he wants to really surprise you. Now, there are, 
It's very difficult to talk about this without giving away specific plot points, so I'm not going to do that. But it's he will kind of present you, Abrams will present you with an A or B choice. Um, so say regarding uh, Snoke, for example, Supreme Leader Snoke. Who is Supreme Leader Snoke? What are we going to find out about him in the next chapter? And Ryan Johnson will say, not only am I going to surprise you, I'm going to surprise you in a surprising way. And he's going to do something with that character that isn't even suggested by what Abrams sets up. And the idea that this film is not kind of introducing new questions. I mean, just look at the, the epilogue with the children in the stable. Now, that to me is the single most exciting development in the Star Wars universe, probably since Empire Strikes Back. Now, the new storytelling possibilities that that sequence opens up and suggests... That is the kind of opening of the mystery box that I wanted to see from The Last Jedi, and it happened. Here's my conversation with director of Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Martin McDonough. I'd do anything to catch the guy who did it, Mrs. Hayes, but when the DNA don't match no one who's ever been arrested, and when the DNA don't match any other crime nationwide, and when there wasn't a single eyewitness from the time she left your house to the time we found her, well, right now there ain't too much more we can do could pull blood from every man and boy in this town over the age of eight. There's civil rights laws prevents that, Mrs. Hayes. And what if he was just passing through town? Pull blood from every man in the country, then. And what if he was just passing through the country? If it was me, I'd start up a database. Every male baby what's born, stick him on it. And as soon as he'd done something wrong, cross-reference it, make 100% certain it was a correct match, then kill him. Yeah, well, there's... Definitely civil rights laws prevents that. That was a clip from Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I'm delighted to be joined by the writer and director of the film, Martin McDonough. Thanks for having me. Would you mind just setting the scene for us? Basically, it's a story about a mother whose uh, daughter was uh, killed about a year before the story starts. Um, Goes to war with the uh, police in her town because she doesn't think they're uh, doing enough to solve the crime. And she puts up three billboards outside of town calling them out for their uh, lack of interest in the case. This is kind of one of the films that I find very difficult to talk about without giving away spoilers. Yeah, there's, there's a few plot twists along the way. A few? They're kind of like, they <laughs> okay, seven. To... There's seven. Oh, I've spoiled it. Oh, no. I mean, there are plot twists and morality twists within scenes, from line to line, I mean, it, which was fantastic. It was just wonderful. Yeah, and there um, are also sort of, you know, it goes from comedic moments to quite dark and serious ones on the drop of a hat, too. It's not just from scene to scene. It's like from line to line sometimes. I like that. I like dark stories that have those comedic elements. There's something that wrong-foots you about those moments in this film, too, I think. I was constantly wrong-footed. And it was, it was, I mean, in terms of plot, but also especially in terms of character. I mean, any time that I thought I'd settled on a viewpoint, the rug was pulled from under my feet. Good, good. Which was, which was great. Good. Was, uh, was, was well, great. part of the idea was to set up a typical heroes and villain story, but then kind of really dismantle that from scene to scene and show that no one was especially um, heroic in it and no one is completely villainous too. There's a grey area in, in the middle of all that that's much more interesting to set a story. Almost the flip side of, the, of tragedy is humour. Mm. The, the humanity comes through the humour a lot, which again came through your previous films as well. In terms of drawing on that, how do you find that balance? When you... it, everything I write comes out naturally that way. All the plays I've had never settled into tragedy. They, they always had some kind of humour attached. And I guess it's the way I see the world 
to a degree in that you know you see a lot of the difficult times we live in but uh unless you can get through it somehow and usually by laughter it's just going to drag us all down so it's about finding those places in in a story i mean it's a, this is a pretty tragic kind of starting point for a story but if we stayed in that place it would be too grim to watch i think so humor and in fact francis's character tears us away from that because she's so sort of outrageous and strong and funny despite herself and despite the sadness of the situation but at the same time you know conversely you don't want it to be so funny that you forget what the story starting point was you don't want to forget the tragedy either you mentioned Frances McDormand, who's extraordinary in it, but also just the entire cast are fantastic. Thanks. Sam Rockwell. I mean, he's one of my favourite actors anyway. Me too, me too. Um, and Woody Harrelson as well, who I suppose is the heart of the film in some ways. Yeah, but, yeah, um, very much. Uh, but also, it just some of the other characters, the supporting characters you have, they all have their moments. Yeah, yeah. And John Hawkes has, has got a lovely sort of uh, couple of scenes. He plays uh, Francis's husband, uh, and I've been a big fan of his for years. And Peter Dinklage I've wanted to work with for ages and ages. We almost did in Bruges together and didn't quite work out, but... Uh, Peter's great. And Caleb. Caleb, Caleb, Caleb Landry-Jones really is, is, is amazing. My brother worked with him, and, and he's in like four or five movies this year, and I think he's going to be a, a big star. So, yeah, it, it, it feels like I've kind of developed a little repertory company of, of actors because there's like four or five people in this one who are in the last one. Uh, and Jelko Ivanek was in all, all three. He's the, he's the guy who gets punched in In Bruges, mm-hmm. and he's the, the sidekick of Woody's character in, in the last one. I, I like old uh, Preston Sturges films and Sam Peckinpah ones, and they used to have like repertory companies of actors that he'd use over again. So uh, I'm kind of trying to follow in their footsteps a little bit. In terms of uh, casting for this, I mean, I kind of read that you effectively wrote this for Francis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in terms of the other characters, were those one, people you had in mind? Were, were they... um, it, it was written for Francis. It was written for Sam as well, because uh, I'd, I'd worked with Sam on the last film and on a play before. Um, and I, I knew his, his character is pretty uh, mean-spirited and racist and, and, and violent and thuggish. But you, but we needed to see some kind of human side through through all that, and 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 Sam is is the perfect uh, actor for that because he's such a he won't hide about playing the um the darkness, but there's such a a decency and a, and, a, and a fun side to him that you knew he was going to kind of bring those elements to the to the character too. The gestation for period for the, for the creation of this is quite a long time it kind of is yeah i, I mean I, I saw something similar to what we see on our billboards about 17 years ago on a bus that was going through one of the southern states of america and it was it was angry and and painful and uh, brave because it was equally calling out the police for uh, what they hadn't done to solve a crime so that stayed in my head for about 10 years um but i didn't put pen to paper till about 2009 um because I didn't quite know what the story was going to be until I decided that the person who put it up there was a was a mother, and uh, once once I kind of came up with that idea, it, it was almost like the the character wrote itself because she had to be have that kind of bravery, but there was had to be something completely outrageous about a person who would do that and who I kind of knew didn't care really about living or dying. She was just going to go to war until this crime was solved. Actually, it struck me that, particularly with Mildred's character, that she was quite a kind of 
archetypal character like a frontiers woman i mean it was almost like it felt like a western yeah yeah i i I didn't really see that on the page so much but when uh francis started talking about uh the character and the people she might model it on john wayne kind of sprang to her mind and i i've never been that much of a john wayne fan but uh mostly politically (laughs) but um i did kind of get where she was coming from like his his john war uh, john ford westerns were kind of you know fantastic and cinematic the but, searchers i suppose yeah yeah writers, yeah um yeah particularly with this with like a lost daughter uh and you know and a hero or anti-hero who's who's doesn't go to all the best places to 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 solve that uh disappearance but i can see it in her walk you know she she has a john wayne walk and i see it in a steely kind of cowboy gaze as she uh rides into town but when carter burwell saw saw a cut of this he he saw all of those aspects and he came up with this spaghetti western like uh, theme uh especially for for mildred that i think gives it uh much more of a, a western dimension than i probably intended originally it also sort of reminded me i suppose in terms of the space and the, the physicality of it of, of films like I don't know, badlands and you know the last picture show even you oh know cool that. two two of my favorites no really yeah 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 um, i think badlands is my favorite film and and when we're thinking about a town then the last picture show was like the first template for for, for this oh well that's well well, well done me <laughs> uh, on the rare occasion that happened um but it, I just wondered whether how much of an influence. Well, obviously, I guess those two films are because they're your favourites. Um, yeah, well, 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 Badlands. I guess we wanted to to capture or steal the sense of um, the American landscape uh, and you know winding roads through countryside and and um, and people in in the landscape. And then last picture show was yeah town. And we watched Paris, Texas a few times to to think about you know color i guess to a degree um and how to tell that kind of an american story but i think most uh, i guess american movies of the 70s are sort of my favorite um time period for 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 movies and we kind of tried to make one like it with this to have something that was kind of very cinematic but kind of not kind of unapologetically downbeat in places and And yet turned up to 11 yeah exactly exactly but like I go back to Billy Wilder and, and and his stuff too in terms of dark comedy. A lot of people say it's it's a Coen Brothers like film, but I, I kind of go back to more old school than that. And and uh, like Ace in the Hole is one of my favorites, and 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 that kind of uh, and I find that funny. You know, that's, yeah. a, that's a, I mean it's a cynical and dark film, but I find it outrageously funny. That one. In terms of uh, the setting of it, Ebbing is a is a fictitious place, isn't yeah, it? But yeah. Was there what was the draw to you for for telling that story there, that small town American story? It. I mean, could that have worked it, anywhere? Could that have worked here? Could that? Have I don't think here? it could have worked in 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 Britain or in Ireland or in in Europe. Even I think there's something about both the sense of the American landscape, but also the, these types of characters, and especially you know Francis's character. She's such a almost large in life almost cinematic type character you know she's 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 bigger than she's bigger than european films uh, she, she, but there's uh, you know what i mean she, there's something american about that kind of toughness that kind of iconic anger i guess yeah it, it's not something that i could imagine being set here is this a less angry film from you than before i well, mean rage uh, is a very fundamental part of your 
stories. The script was written about eight years ago, and, and I thought it was my angriest piece yet on the page. But like seeing it, uh, how it turned out, seeing it in the edit and, and how people have taken it, I think it is very truthful about the rage of her character and maybe about the rage of women generally at this point in time. But um, there's a surprising amount of sort of humanity and hope that kind of came through in, in the playing of it uh, on, on, on set. And especially in, in the edit, we kind of found ourselves going down that route, the route of sort of, can these raging, angry people change? Is there, is there room for something a little bit more human? And that's what I kind of take away from it. So it's not as raging a piece as I thought it was at, at the script stage. There's lots of awards buzz for the actors, for you. Is that something that uh, is coming into kind of awards season, along with kind of spring, summer, autumn, winter <laughs> yeah. awards? Is that something that, that excites you? Does it make you nervous? Are you bothered? Are you not bothered? I guess because I don't make films very often, it's like, well, it seems like one every five years, that uh, it's it's nicer to be talked about than... <laughs> than the last one where we weren't talked about at all. So, so yeah, it is. But, you know, when people like Francis and Sam and, and Woody become your friends, you kind of hope almost more for them than, uh, than for yourself that what they've done will be recognised. It's cool. It just means more people will, will get to see a film that they might not have seen uh, without that. And uh, what's, what's next for you? Well, I've written a play this year that will be on in London uh, next year, and Jim Broadbent will be in that. I'm going to be working with him again. And I'm just going to go away and pick up a load of awards and uh, <laughs> no, and just write. I'm going to take, you know, I'm not going to make a film for a, a year or two or more, uh, but just write, write some new stories and see if they're raging or um, hopeful. Could you make it a year or two rather than more? <laughs> I can't make any promises. Well, then I don't know why we're having this conversation. <laughs> Martin, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was Martin McDonough talking about Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. The film's out in the UK next week, so Mark will review it on next Friday's show. But some of you have seen it already, uh, including Gary Corkin, who says... Um, this film had me going directly from belly laughs to heartache and back to belly laughs time and again. The script is marvellous. It's dark, it's funny, it is thought-provoking and at times incredibly tense. You may be able to tell that I rather loved the film and I have to say it was mostly down to three wonderful performances. Woody Harrelson, Sam Rockwell and Frances McDormand. She fills up the screen in every shot. Her ability to convey pain and loss is unparalleled and whilst there is time to go, I genuinely think that it will take an unbelievable performance to keep her from the Academy Award. She played this beautifully and her performance has and will stay, stay with me for some time. Oh, the film also has some of the most colourful efforty jefferties I've heard in the cinema and I'd be lying if I didn't mention the fact they made me laugh an awful lot. Uh, thanks, Gary. Um, this is from Matt Anderson who says, uh, This evening I left a busy multiplex cinema with a huge smile on my face, the kind of smile that comes with a devious sense of dark humour and mischief for I've seen three billboards. As I write this with a Cheshire cat grin across my smile-aching cheeks, I'm relieved to have seen my third Martin McDonough film have not been disappointed with the super sharp wit snappy pacing and characters i just want to watch forever three billboards is a triumph meanwhile francis mcdormand held me to attention as soon as she opened her mouth as the rough and tough mildred a woman you'd want on your side tons of fun over exceeded the six laugh tests and even a few code breakers in the seats couldn't deter me from my viewing pleasure thanks matt anderson robbie yeah i mean look i would pick up on something that gary said was this idea of the comedic whiplash where you're moving between hilarity and heartbreak and then back to hilarity again it's exactly my experience of this film and what i love about martin mcdonough's writing um is that his comedy is never an easy ride i mean he uh he makes you laugh and then he makes you 
ask yourself why you're laughing. And both times I've seen this film, I've seen it with an audience, um, there has been a sort of an echo laugh after the original laugh to most jokes. So you're kind of doubling up on, you know, the 12 laugh, 20 laugh test in this case, um, where he will he will make you, you will find yourself amused by something, but then he will not allow you to leave that reaction behind. He'll make you go back and ask, you know, why is this funny? Should it have been funny? Should I feel bad for finding it funny? And not in a kind of a, oh, non-PC, we're taking no prisoners, no sacred cows here, folks, you know, buckle up. It's, it's, it's intelligent and it's inquisitive and it forces you to, to reflect on why it is you're finding it so funny. But you do find it very funny. I mean, I thought it was one of the best scripts that I'd, I'd seen actually in a long, long time. I thought it was my favourite um, coming into this uh, award season, so it was. Something as well that Martin mentioned in the interview is that he sets it up as one kind of film, this battle of wills between Mildred and the police department. And then it just barrels off in another direction, screeches around this unexpected development and then off somewhere else entirely. And it's, you know, the, the fact that he makes you expect one thing, but then gives you three things. And the screech, the handbrake turn in the middle is just sublimely well written. There's, it involves some letters. I won't say any more than that, but these letters had me in pieces. Same here. Now, this is from uh, Michael Black, who says, I was disappointed by three billboards uh, outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, there was a lot to admire in the film, not least Francis McDormand's devastating performance in the leading role as a strong-willed parent, driven, driven by grief and anger to violence and hatred. The exploration of retaliation and forgiveness was well done, and the ratcheting tension led to a few nail-biting moments. I felt these strengths and the emotional underpinnings of the story were undermined by several missteps. Firstly, the unnecessarily brutal violence, which at times deviated from the grim reality of the small-town story into Tom and Jerry or Kill Bill cartoonery. The black humour did not land as effectively as in, in Bruges. Jason Dixon's racism, that's the character that uh, Sam Rockwell plays, uh, was too often used for a cheap laugh and not adequately dealt with or condemned. Ultimately, the whole picture was too brutal, too nihilistic for the tender moments to touch the audience in the way I think the director intended. For that reason, I do not think the film will stand up as a classic in the way several reviews suggest it might. I think, can I say, the yeah. condemnation is probably implicit in Sam Rockwell's character's conduct. You know, I don't think the film needs to spell out that what he's doing is unacceptable, particularly in light of what happens to that character later, which is, again, completely unexpected. Indeed. Uh, and uh, one more, which is uh, from Bodhi Sarkar, who says, Dearest subs, my thoughts echo the cascade of positive reviews that this film has already received from the festival circuit. Three billboards has set the high bench high for 2018, thanks to some potent writing, direction and performances from McDormand, Rockwell and Harrelson. Uh, Martin McDonough understands the human nature of using humour to, humor to confront instances of tragedy and horror, resulting in some touchingly organic performances. Francis McDormand is sensational in Three Billboards, possessing the weathered face of a mother filled with immeasurable rage. Much of her acting is depicted through her eyes, which tell the tale of a woman who's been suffering long before the film's personal tragedy. The film's UK release is aptly timed for everybody making their New Year's resolution, which delivers a positive message about community support and not being quick to judge others. I wish the filmmakers well in the upcoming awards season. That's from Bodhi. Your reaction to... Yes, I, I mean, I wonder the... The, the thing that he said as well about it, it being people have likened it to a Coen Brothers film. Obviously, Francis McDormand's presence, you know, front and centre does remind you of Fargo because how could it not? But I think maybe the the, the slight sense of um, dissatisfaction that a previous correspondent had with it is, is, is something to do with that it's not specifically playing by those rules that you expect it to play by. In the interview, Martin said that he admires uh, the way that Sam Peckinpah and Preston Sturgis both built up these repertory companies of players 
who got those directors' respective styles. Now, if you were looking to place Martin McDonagh on a continuum of directors, it's basically the dead centre point between Preston Sturgis and Sam Peckinpah. So you have this incredibly hard-bitten, uh, you know, n- nasty, difficult, violent Americanness, And then with Sturgis, you have this crazy, super silly, screwball uh, nonsense and incredibly ornate dialogue going on. He does both of those things to the nth degree. So, yeah, I think, you know, don't go in expecting a Coen Brothers film by any stretch. You know, it's a Martin McDonough film picking up with what he did so beautifully in Bruges. I, I mean, I, th- I thought it was very interesting what he said about being likened to Billy Wilder as yes, well, yes. because that's a kind of uh, an interesting counterpoint, particularly with Ace and the Hole, which I thought was a, a terrific film. But um, you'll hear Mark's review of that uh, next week as well. Um, I think it was probably quite easy to see that I really loved we, it. We thought it was all right. It was okay. <laughs> go and see it. Go and see it. Uh, but on to a new release this week, um, All the Money in the World. This is from Jess Hughes, who says, new strapline for film, All the Money in the World, starring Michelle Williams, Mark Wahlberg and Christopher Plummer, but not Kevin Spacey. Thanks very much, Jess. This is a new development in the butt game. It hadn't even occurred to me <laughs> that this was this was a po- new possibility with this. This, this, was, this is a real butt. Yes. Well, and yes, we'll get into this. Let me let me just um. So, sorry, is that the end of the text? Or have we got? Yes. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. No. So no, that's a very very good observation, and we'll get into the mechanics of why that particular butt looms so large in 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 the scope of this film. But this is a new film from Ridley Scott, which is adapted from a biography of the oil tycoon J. Paul Getty called Painfully Rich. But it zeroes in on a specific event in his life, uh, which was in 1973, the kidnapping of his grandson, John Paul Getty III, um, by Italian mobsters when he was wandering around Rome one night. Uh, They basically took him off to some uh, secret location and ransomed him for $17 million. And Getty, at the time, being the richest man in the world, was, uh, you know, you can understand the rationale behind that. You know, you just take this kid, he's going to cough up the money with no questions asked. However, Getty, who's in the film, was played by Christopher Plummer, uh, did not do that. He actually refused point blank to pay a penny of ransom and would not negotiate, which uh, completely blindsided both his family and the kidnappers themselves. And so the whole event descended into a kind of a grand guignol chaotic farce. And we have this, this great scene where Getty sets out his uh, his rationale behind this uh, to his longtime fixer, Fletcher Chase, who's played by Mark Wahlberg, and it's in this clip. They will do things to Paul that cannot be undone for any amount of money. We have to pay. This simply isn't possible. My financial position has changed. Really? I mean, 30 seconds ago, you said it was a good day. I mean, I'm not all that bright, but I can multiply as well as you. With oil up as much as it was this morning, you have amassed another fortune. Well, what if the embargo is lifted and oil were to crash, I'd be exposed. I have never been more vulnerable financially than I am right now. Mr. Getty, with all due respect, nobody has ever been richer than you are at this moment. I have no money to spare. What would it take? I mean, what would it take for you to feel secure? More. So this great sinister operatic uh, sensibility that Ridley Scott does so incredibly well. In light of this decision by Getty, uh, John Paul's mother, Gail Harris, who's played by Michelle Williams, has to collaborate with the Italian police to try and track down where on earth her son is and set up some kind of bargaining dialogue with the uh, with the kidnappers. Also, Fletcher Chase, Mark Wahlberg's character, is being asked by Getty to sort of sniff around and work out what's going on as well. And the theme of the film that underpins it all is what is the connection between uh, money? Can you put a monetary value on a single life? And if you refuse to do it despite having so much money in the same way that 
that Getty did. Did, did. What does that say about you and what does it say about money and the, the influence that money has over how a person lives their life? Um, now, there are two separate ways to review this film and you can take into account uh, the way in which it was made and then very quickly remade or you can just look at it um, as, as, as a finished product. I think it's, it's, it's worth going the, the first route because you get, I think, a, a much sharper appreciation for what actually Ridley Scott and particularly Christopher Plummer achieved. The film was basically finished back in September of last year um, and Kevin Spacey had shot the role uh, of, of J. Paul Getty under heavy prosthetics and uh, old age makeup, you know, that had taken him to, to his 80s. And then, of course, the allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault came out against Kevin Spacey. And Ridley Scott, under his instigation, said, OK, rather than have this film shelved and have the hard work of hundreds of collaborators, cast members, craftspeople effectively go to waste, because I, I think, in fact, he said in a, an interview this morning, he basically realised the film had become unreleasable. He was going to, in the six weeks before the film's release, he was going to recast the role of Getty. He was going to reshoot all of Getty's scenes with the original cast in place, uh, the, the other original cast members, rather. He was then going to re-edit those scenes back into the finished film. And then this was all going to be fine for a late December release in the States and then obviously early January release in, uh, in the UK. Now, I don't think there's any precedent for this in the history of filmmaking to have turned around an alter a completely alternative cut of the film in such a short time and I should say the role of Getty is not a small one Christopher Plummer is in this film a lot and it is his uh, his his character's journey or arguably lack of journey that underpins the entire thing so this is not a decision that has been taken lightly it's not just dropping in a funny little cameo for an actor friend who and, and in fact Ridley Scott wanted Christopher Plummer to play the role in the first place before I think the studio convinced him no you go with a bigger name and this will help get people in to see the, the, the film so it's not just a favour this is a complete you know basically ground level reworking of the film now it's pointless to go into all the money in the world and look for the joins because there aren't any. I mean, the, the way this has been achieved, the, the seamlessness with which it's been put, re reassembled is, is incredible to me. But it's almost, it's worth knowing this in the same way that when you went to see The Revenant, it was worth knowing about all the onset, you know, flying up to the mountains in a helicopter at four in the morning, uh, the raw bison liver, bloody, bloody, blah, blah. Because when you went to see The Revenant, a part of you was going to see the making of The Revenant to see how on earth they'd achieved what they'd achieved out in the wilderness. And in the same way, for me, all the money in the world, you're marvelling at Ridley Scott's uh, determination as a filmmaker, his incredible efficiency, the way in which he can restage some incredibly dramatically complex scenes with an actor who had four days to prepare for this role between taking the call from Ridley Scott saying, will you do it? And then being on set and then a nine day shoot. I think he was flown around between uh, England and Italy back and forth in a private jet to make sure they could do the location shootings with the rest of the cast in, in, in position. So they're not just, you know, matching up eyelines with this kind of invisible CG character. And the fact it's come together as seamlessly as it has done is to me completely amazing. And what Plummer achieves with the character, uh, particularly, you know, whether he had, you know, four days to prepare for this or four months is amazing because he is one of these Ridley Scott's powerful white men that he just specialises in, like Peter Wayland in Prometheus and Alien Covenant, and like Terrell in the original Blade Runner as well. He is someone who has accrued so much power and influence in his life that it kind of lets him see through how society works and understand the, the mechanisms behind society in a different way than would ever occur to, to, to you or I. So his, one of his stated rationales for not paying the ransom 
is that he basically doesn't want to create a market for ransoms because this is, you know, he understands the world in, in terms of money flowing through it. And if he did that, his 14 other grandchildren would all be immediately kidnapped as well. Now, that's not a thought that would have ever occurred to me in that position, I don't think. But Plummer just puts enough humanity, and I mean, it is a kind of a an expert chef-like sprinkling, seasoning of humanity into this monstrous character to make you see... Oh yeah, okay. So this is how this is how he's thinking about the world. This is how he understands it, and this is why he's he's acting in the way that he is. Um, it's not the only good performance in the film by by a long stretch. I think you know Mark Wahlberg does the things that Mark Wahlberg does well throughout the film, which is great. Michelle Williams as, as the mother is terrific. She does this wonderful kind of strange mid-Atlantic inflection in her in her voice uh, because she is basically living without the Getty riches. And Charlie Plummer, who's no relation to Christopher Plummer, but who plays the young John Paul Getty III, the kidnap uh, victim, um, is tremendous. He's in a film, the new Andrew Haig film, Lean on Pete, uh, you, you know, the director of 45 Years um, and Weekend. Uh, that film, I think, is coming out later this year and is, is really, really good. It's, it's a great sort of young star-making performance for him, but he's terrific in this as well. Um, and so you've got this kidnap thriller attached to this fascinating character study and both parts work beautifully, regardless of how long it took to assemble and pull apart and build back up. Well, I was going to say that, you know, although the, you know, the Christopher Plummer having to shoot everything in 10 days is kind of extraordinary. I mean, he's 88 years old. And uh, as you said, I mean, you know, one prepares for weeks or months uh, to do a film like this. And, you know, he had four days and he was thrown in. And it was very difficult for me to kind of uh, see anybody else but Christopher Plummer playing it a minute into the film. Um, although, as a film, it has to work without one's knowledge of how it came together. You know, ultimately, as an audience, you kind of go, does the film work as a film? Yes, of course. And, and in 10 years' time, I think more audience members will approach it with that mindset, just as I'm sure uh, with The Revenant, when you know the news stories faded away about how difficult this shoot had been, people just came to it as an ordinary film. Um, but I think, I mean, it's hard to detach yourself from that, but I strongly suspect that all the money in the world would completely hold up and be as impressive uh, even without this sort of sideshow uh, business of doing it. And with Ridley Scott, it's just, you know, he is, he celebrated his 80th birthday while he was recutting this. You know, he was filming in the mornings and the afternoons and then editing in his hotel room at night uh, with the editor, the footage that they'd accrued during the day. Um, he is, you know, moving from film to film. He's already scouted his next film. He was in talks with Disney to do this uh, this kind of epic Marilyn film that they've apparently had in, in mind for him for a while. Um, and he just... His craftsmanship is so good. You know, he storyboards these things before he gets to set. He's already basically made the film in his head. He's then gathering, you know, the, what he needs in order to assemble it in real life after that. And he has this great facility for creating a really vivid sense of place. And in a real world film like this, it's about 70s period details. It's about flurries of snow. It's about sort of parched grassland that give you a kind of a way of transporting yourself into what's going on in the same way that a film like Blade Runner you feel like you've walked through Los Angeles 2019 when you watch that film you know Alien you've been on board the Nostromo he is very very good at the sense of place and it comes through even when he's not working in science fiction I thought I mean I really enjoyed the film I thought it was a terrific film and uh, I know that uh, uh, O'Danny Boyle um, is kind of uh, directing a series based on the kidnapping written by Simon Beaufoy. So I saw some of the script and it covers some of the same territory. And one of the, the the very small kind of caveats I have about All the Money in the World was that at the end of the film, there's a disclaimer which says that, you know, some of these things have, you know, we've used dramatic license to kind of uh, change some of the things. And I wondered why 
they needed to do. I can I can understand it in terms of kind of uh, constricting time and stuff like that. But I think the actual story is so extraordinary and the uh, characters involved, like, you know, all of the Gettys, the Getty father, you know, the, the, the father of John Paul Getty was, you know, pa- Paolo, I think they call him, the one who was kidnapped. You know, his absence from it and stuff like that. I think there are lots of really interesting bits of detail there that, that were missed out. They have kept in lots of fantastic detail, like the fact that uh, John Paul Getty was so mean that uh, he put locks on all the telephones and installed a payphone in his home for anyone to make calls. I mean, he was that mean as a person. So they've got little details like that in there, but I think there are other things that are in the broader story, which we may see in, in Danny Boyle's series or if people read up on it, um, which were which I, I was surprised were, were kind of shifted around. And at the end as well, there's a very obvious dramatic liberty taken with having two things happen at the same time, which were in real life separated by, by years. Yes. It makes sense storytelling-wise, and it gives you a beautiful... Uh, shall we say, tying up of a certain plot thread. Yes. Um, but that was, I mean, that's very obviously a creative liberty. It was, it was. Um, but I'll, got, I'll allow it. Will you now? Yes. Oh, that's very noble of you. Um, we've got a text here uh, from Andy in Harpenden who says, Hi, Terrible 2, just seen all the money. Thought Christopher Plummer was excellent, especially as he stood in for Kevin Spacey. What a mean man he was. Uh, I'm not sure who he's referring to. Let's assume it's Getty. Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Williams were also very interesting and believable characters, and the whole film was very interesting and tense in places. The story being based on fact was well worth telling and showed once again that money does not bring happiness. Uh, Ain't that the truth? Andy from Harpenden. Uh, So what have we got next? Uh, Let's talk about Brad's Status, which is the new film written and directed by Mike White, who many years ago uh, wrote School of Rock for Richard Linklater. And since then, he's had writing credits all over the place, including, funnily enough, Pitch Perfect 3, which we discussed earlier. And he also uh, is credited with having partly written the Emoji movie. But I believe in that situation, we can't apportion too much blame because I think he was on it for three weeks or something, just basically trying to restructure it into some kind of, and you know, obviously not managing to do so, trying to restructure it in some sensible order. Uh, But he wrote and directed this script. It's a star's uh, ben Stiller as a successful married father in his late 40s who's a former journalist and has since gone on to found a non-profit organisation that um, he is the, the, the sole kind of employee of as well as the founder that's to do with uniting people with charitable donations and it's all incredibly worthy he's very stably married he has a teenage son called Troy who's uh, played by Austin Abrams who is uh, in the middle of applying for college and has had some prestigious offers from uh, various uh, you know Ivy League institutions And yet he has a nagging sense that he's not doing as well as he should be. And the main reason for this is his own college-age friends are obscenely successful and very overtly successful. One of them, played by Luke Wilson, is a hedge fund manager and one played by Michael Sheen is this suave political pundit who has written this best-selling, very insightful political book and he's always on television chewing over the big issues of the day. And this has kindled this sense of dissatisfaction in Brad's life. Now, his... Anxiety comes to a head while he's touring around the various universities with Troy on this father-son road trip uh, to his son's frequent semi-public mortification. And he basically wishes he was a few rungs higher up the ladder so that he could spend bigger, make things move more smoothly, perhaps grease some palms, you know, shake some hands, make his son's passage into higher education a little bit more smooth than it's going to be. And here's uh, one such uh, embarrassing encounter that they have along the way in this clip. Oh, good news. There are two seats available in business. Oh. Can I see your tickets, please? Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I was hoping to put it on my miles. 
I got a bunch of miles, I think. Unfortunately, no, not with this flight, you can't. So, cost to upgrade to business would be $821 per ticket. So the total would be $1,642. $1,600? That's for a domestic flight? Yes, $1,642. Would you like to go ahead and purchase the tickets? I am going to go for it. Go for it. I'm going to put it on my Amex. Actually, sorry. Put it on my MasterCard. Thanks. I'm going to put it on the Amex. So your tolerance for this film is in direct proportion to your tolerance for Brad's nonsense. And it is nonsense. You know, this guy is doing perfectly well in life. And it's very, very clear from about two minutes into the film that the only lesson that he can have possibly learned by the end of it is shut up, stop complaining. The grass is completely green enough for you or anyone else. So just get on with your life, you know, enjoy what you've got. The film, you can imagine a version of this film where basically everyone was looking askance at Brad, thinking that what he was doing this kind of bizarre midlife crisis he was going through is completely absurd. But that's not the approach that Mike White takes. He actually seems to indulge Brad's character to quite a strange degree. And and he does that by, uh, there's for example, there's a very flowery, um, I would say overwritten first person uh, narration by Ben Stiller's character where he talks, you know, very intensely about all these incredible, you know, difficulties he's going through in his life. And this is kind of playing over the top of him bumbling around with his son. And there's dream sequences where he's imagining himself frolicking on the beach with, you know, two of his son's teenage friends, completely inappropriate kind of fantasies that he's having about this other life that he could have led if he'd made separate decisions. And there are uh, there's a supporting character played by a, a, a new actress called uh, Shazi Raja, who I've not seen in anything, who plays um, one of the students that they meet during a tour at Harvard. And she very patiently and very sympathetically sits down with Brad to listen to you know how he feels his life has gone wrong and sort of nod and reassure him that everything's going well. And what it made me feel is that the film doesn't really understand who its main character actually is. And if you compare it to Ben Stiller's recent work with Noah Baumbach, so in films like Greenberg and While We're Young and The Mayor of Its Stories, particularly The Mayor of Its Stories, which came out last year and is, is just a terrific, terrific piece of acting from Ben Stiller specifically and, and a great Baumbach film in general. Stiller plays deeply flawed characters in those films and the films express limited sympathy for those characters and they get you to feel sympathy for them. But they still make no bones about sort of exposing their foibles and flaws and, uh, for, and you know, making you aware of just how absurd they are. So even if the character doesn't really understand who they are, you're certain that the film understands who they are and you come out certain that you understand who they are. This film, the details just don't add up. And it's a pity because Ben Stiller is actually really good in this and moment to moment scene to scene you can see he's putting a lot of thought into it. he has as you know as we know from that earlier work with Baumbach he has a really assured tragicomic touch when it comes to this stuff he can make you uh feel sorry but also laugh at someone and in, 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 laugh at a character in, in the same uh, in the same sentence you know in the same line so he's doing that scene by scene but together this kind of sensible character doesn't really cohere you have uh he's a son who is going off to study music um, at Harvard or whatever Tufts, whatever university he decides to go for in the end. And I just don't believe that Ben Stiller's character, who is as status conscious as he is, would be happy with a son going to study music because obviously it's not this kind of super lucrative job unless you, you know, get in right at the very, very top of this industry. It's something you follow your heart to do. Surely he'd be persuading him to go into, you know, law or dentistry or something that's going to be a, a more surefire earner but the film just doesn't seem to notice that this is this weird inconsistency and so it's kind of seeded throughout it that it, you just don't sense that it really knows what it's doing I, I admire Bensler's commitment to the part 
I just wish he had something more solid and more memorable to commit to. Who do you think this is aimed at? I think it's aimed at men who are in their 40s who are experiencing some kind of midlife crisis that life hasn't worked out as well. It's basically aimed at Brad. It's the kind of film that Brad would go and see and go, do you know what? I am actually doing okay, but I don't, you know, this kind of backslapping for a character who is so objectionable in the first place, I just can't get on board with. Mm, well, there you go. Uh, that is uh, Brad's status. Uh, now to the moment that uh, we've both been waiting for. Renegades. Wow, let's talk about Renegades. Yeah, okay, let's so talk about Renegades. Let's start with a bit of background on Renegades because this is the latest production of EuropaCore. Uh, EuropaCore being the independent studio that um, Luc Besson founded in France and is sort of responsible for this uh, genre which is sort of widely known as the Euro thriller. So the, the kind of paradigmatic Euro thrillers taken, the Transporter trilogy, you know, those kind of films where you are making something that is shamelessly. Uh, popcorny and you know mainstream and can be watched by basically any audience anywhere in the world. It will be set in Europe, so you will have some kind of cultural, interesting European inflections in there. But it will have a mainly English-speaking cast, probably a big American star, a British star like Jason Statham, for example, in the Transporter films, or Liam Neeson, of course, in Taken. All the Euro thrillers that Liam Neeson has gone to do and do and do and do and do and do again since the Taken films, and this will be something that will be not very challenging, will be potentially very well crafted and will be sellable around the world. And it would be kind of a great way for young directors or less high profile directors to get to make an action film with a big star in an interesting location. This is just what EuropaCore does. And Renegades just falls completely squarely into the middle of this tradition. It's co-written by Luc Besson um, and the director is Stephen Quayle, who um, his, his director credits previously he made final destination five which was the surprise good final destination hmm. then he also did this found footage uh disaster movie called into the storm which is basically a twister with camcorders i, just, I was forced terrible. to go and see that by the missus and I, I may have mentioned this on the show before but it, it was richard armitage uh yes and twisters basically and richard armitage was <laughs> he, he was a school teacher i don't know what subject maybe he just covered a lot of subjects like math geography Higher math, um, and he was caught up in kind of well, he was the hero fiery of the tornadoes thing. and yeah, he went to go. He the size of punched each ball tornado in the face, <laughs> something. The interesting thing about Stephen Quayle is not those films that he directed, but he was um, James Cameron's second unit director on Titanic and Avatar. So what he brings, he has this really weird Cameron sensibility that he brings to the Euro Europa Core template where he has this story about these uh, fraternal army guys. So the, the bulk of the story is set outside Sarajevo in the mid-1990s with this uh, kind of a unit of uh, army, uh, Navy, US Navy SEALs going to find this cache of st stolen Nazi gold that's in this underwater village. Um, so he has that kind of Cameronian fraternal banter between these army guys. And also there's a lot of underwater shooting, which of course we know that um, Cameron is massively into his underwater photography. So you have that as well. So can I just interrupt? <clears throat> yes. Because you said underwater village. I mean, it, it suggests an Atlantis type place. Yes, no, actually... no. This is it's a village that's been flooded by a dam exploding in and... order to conceal and, well, to drive out the Nazis when this gold was initially stashed right. there. So the gold was in the village that then got flooded by a dam yes. and is down there. Yes, that's right. So these soldiers, these five soldiers, they hear about this gold um, from uh, one of their girlfriends who's played by Sylvia Hawks, who was loved in Blade Runner she was 2049. Great. She was she great, great in, in Blade Runner 2049. Yes. Yeah. Um, they hear about the gold, they decide to get it out, and uh, this is just the latest in a number of scrapes which has seen them fall foul of their commanding officer who's played by J.K. Simmons. Now, J.K. Simmons has six scenes in this film. Four of them are barrack room dressing downs, and here is a clip from one of them. I don't know which one, but here's a clip. 
Your orders were to get in, secure the package, deliver it without a footprint like we were never there. And what'd we get? A Soviet-era tank running roughshod over half the goddamn city of Sarajevo, dead Serbs in its wake, and a highly uncomfortable conversation between myself and the Undersecretary of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Sir, we were compromised. So in order to protect my team and complete the op, we had to adapt. And you thought driving a goddamn tank over half a Sarajevo was the answer? And so the result is this kind of perfunctory and rubbish hybrid between a war movie, a bank heist movie, and a diving documentary as they go underwater in order to extract this gold from the and underwater And something world. rubbish. And that's combination kind of, of those three kind of things it. and some trash. And I feel, you know, there's so there's nothing really to remember, nothing distinctive about it. I can feel as I'm talking about it, the you know, the little creatures in, inside out with the vacuum cleaner. They're sort of walking through my head, just hoovering up all the information about this film. It's going, we'll never need this again. I will not remember having seen Renegades at the end of this year. I will probably not remember having seen it at the end of this day. And but that's I, it. You know, it just, it passes the time. Did, did it? It kind of does. But that's that's sort of it. There's there's, there's really nothing. And there's, there's this dogfight over a lake that is only in there because I think they wanted a dogfight over a lake. It just has nothing to do with anything. Well, between a, a jet fighter and a helicopter yes, as yeah. well. Uh, with, you know, that wonderful mismatch. I mean, it, you know, it was trying to be, it, you know, when it started, I thought, oh, I quite like this. This is, you know, Nazi gold. I'm a sucker for World War II films. And then it was Sarajevo. And then you've got these guys who are like five James Bonds. Uh, who these Navy SEALs and the kind of things that they get away with. I mean, they they take on half the kind of Serbian army or whatever in order to kind of escape at the beginning. It's the beginning of the film. It's not a spoiler. And um, and you kind of go, you know, with guys like that, how do, you know, these gung-ho uh, American Navy SEALs, how do they ever lose anything? <laughs> right? Because you don't need all the other people. You just send these five guys in and they'll take out an entire army. It's a point where one of the Navy SEALs, they, J.K. Simmons' clip, you know, he said, you know, you drove away in a tank. Um, he's driving a tank and somebody says, one of the other characters says, uh, I didn't know you could drive a tank. And he goes, my first time. And you kind of go, this is ridiculous. In that case, I could drive a tank. And all five like of a them. mini micro. All five of them are the same person. And there's this thing about, you know, which one is Sylvia Hawke's going to end up with? Just like, just roll a dice. It doesn't like, matter. They're thing. all the same soldier. Just Beat up at everybody they encounter. There's a bit where they have to get some, you know, they they, they need to get some uh, equipment from someone. And the way they get around it is they say to him, okay, this is a top secret mission. He goes, top secret? You say, top secret. Nobody got to know. You probably get a medal. He goes, yes, I'm in. And you kind of go, this is ridiculous. This isn't even, this wasn't even lost in translation. I mean, I like some of Luke Besson's stuff, but this, this was kind of just that worst kind of, you know, xenophobic, flag-waving, gung-ho uh, sort of macho-type uh, film that I really can't stand. However, as I'm determined to say something good about it, um, once you get to the uh, the underwater village, some of the photography there is fantastic. Yes, right, and that's the James you know. Cameron connection. Yes. I think that's, you know, certainly it's something that Cameron has been preoccupied with through his entire career, and I'm sure that he would choose... 80s with that kind of uh, second unit directors with that same interest. Yeah, but then it's you know then you you then you go back to some more stupidness. It's basically a stupid sandwich with with a nice filling, a very thin like filling one, one of, of underwater wafer city thin thing, things. a wafer, a wafer thin underwater city sequence. But there you go. Uh, it may, may float your boat. That's uh, Renegades. Uh, before we go any further, it's time for TV movie of the week, and some of you have been guessing what Robbie will pick. Um, here we have Denise Atkins, who says Moonrise Kingdom and Captain Phillips are both brilliant. Of the ones I haven't seen, I'd pick West Side Story and 
I haven't seen. OK, I'd pick West Side Story and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Robbie should also pick TTSS for the Gary Oldman performance, seeing as he's getting so much praise for the forthcoming Darkest Hour. John Mills says, haven't watched JFK for years, so that's my choice. Plus, it's the film that everyone forgets Gary Oldman is in. James Cook says Groundhog Day is a near-perfect film, but surely a month too early, unless it's going to be on every day until then. <laughs> See what you did there, James. Otherwise, West Side Story, which has everything. Alan Timmins says, well, it's Groundhog Day. Alan Timmins says, well, it's Groundhog Day. And Alan Timmins says, well, it's Groundhog Day. Ian Johnston says, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy and Captain Phillips were among the best offerings of recent years, but I forget how good Groundhog Day is until, ironically, I gave it a repeat viewing. As long as Robbie picks that or Moonrise Kingdom, I'll be happy. Paul Slade says, it's a fantastic week with lovely films across the board. I love Groundhog Day. It's getting a lot of love, isn't it? But West Side Story, also getting a lot of love, is possibly the best musical ever, so that's my choice. Robbie will choose Spectre because he loves a bit of Bond. Ian Wright... Possibly not that one. Uh, got to go with Captain Phillips, if only for Tom Hanks' finest hour towards the end of the film. Terrific stuff. Robbie, what is your TV movie of the week? Well, look, Groundhog Day is an unimpeachable classic and I would urge anyone who has or hasn't seen the film to watch it because it's just, it's completely wonderful. And Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy as well, a great chance to catch up with a very subtle downplayed Gary Oldman performance before, obviously, uh, Darkest Hour next week with Winston Churchill, which is much more kind of theatrical and, 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 and big and kind of uh, light-sucking. Um, and you know Gary Oldman's on the show next week. He is, right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, but the one I'm going to go for is The Social Network <gasps> because Molly's Game has put me back in a Sorkin frame of mind and I just want to see peak Sorkin, maximum Sorkin in operation because what I love about what um, Sorkin does is the way in which he writes, he kind of makes you feel as if you're understanding incredibly complex systems. And that was always the deal with Molly's game, is that, you know, poker is a very confusing game about playing odds and about bluffing. And the way in which, you know, in the middle of that film, I don't know if I walked away from it with a richer understanding of poker than when I went in, but in the middle of the film, I really felt as if I kind of understood what everything was meant and, you know, the significance of, he's turned over a king. And in, uh, you know, so that's something that he does very well anyway. In The Social Network, I think that's being played out to the, the absolute peak of his powers. You know, you sense the idea that there is a total kind of revolution going on in the way in which human beings interact and that it's being masterminded by someone who finds it very, very difficult to interact with human beings. And, you know, this is the events in this film have completely changed the way in which we absorb information and the way in which we're friends with people even, uh, you know, in, in, in the years since. So it will be definitely a Sorkin revisit for me. Um, since Gary Oldman is coming on the show next week, I'm going to say Tinker Ta Taylor Soldier Spy just in case he listens to this. <clears throat> I'm just trying to curry further. That's all <laughs> it is. Um, so we also have, of course, uh, So Bad, It's Bad Choices as well. And some people have made suggestions uh, for that. Ian Johnson again, who we heard from just now. Uh, the Sweeney for me. Hancock is far from great, but at least it's a superhero inflected movie that tried something a bit different. Um, Adrian Charles says Hancock starts well enough, but weakens as it progresses. And as always, Will Smith plays Will Smith. Uh, the Sweeney movie is appalling all the way through. And I still can't understand why when they arrest a villain, despite being British, they use the American right to remain silent admonition. So Hancock, please. Keith Wilshire says the Sweeney from this list. Ray Winston swanning about, shouting out catchphrase Cockney lines. Shut it. While Ben Drew can hardly raise the energy or enthusiasm to even try acting. James Richard Wallace says, I sometimes feel like this question should be who spent it better. Hancock had a budget of $150 million versus Sweeney's $4 million. Purely because I expected something more of not only Will Smith, but also $150 million. I've got to say that Hancock gets my vote for So Bad It's Bad. And Michel Francois says, without a shadow of a doubt, it's got to be Hancock. I'm convinced they stapled two different treatments together, having had half of each blown away on the trip to the producer's office. What's your choice, Robbie? 
well, look, I believe that stapling story isn't too far from the truth. My choice is Hancock because Hancock was released at this sort of fork in the road for superhero films. It was released in the same summer as Iron Man. And you can imagine had Iron Man not caught on in the way it had done and kindled this incredible roaring appetite for more Marvel films, more films that kind of bind together based on established comic book characters, comic book lore. You know, we're going to create this massive multi-strand universe with tentacles everywhere. Had that not clicked and had this more imaginative, unusual treatment of a superhero, because Hancock is about an outcast superhero played by Will Smith, who is kind of a public enemy for having these superpowers and misapplying them all over the place. Perhaps we would have seen more standalone films like that that weren't based on pre-existing properties. So I'm really interested to, to revisit it. The stapling thing, I think that's pretty much what happened. They had a, a completed script and it was decided that the entire final third was no good and had to change into something more conventionally spectacular. So they just got rid of it and put in a, a completely separate plot. And that's why it feels disjointed, because it actually was. Um, but I think there's a lot of interesting stuff, stuff that hasn't necessarily been tried ever since then, uh, going on in the first two thirds of the film. And I'd be really interested to see it again with fresh eyes after uh, 10 years, I think, since it came out 2008. Okay, so Hancock Curfew is the so bad it's bad. Uh, back to new releases and Hostiles. Yes, let's talk about Hostiles, which is a new Western directed by Scott Cooper. Scott Cooper was the director of Crazy Heart, uh, the Jeff Bridges uh, country and Western um, music uh, film from 2009, Out of the Furnace he made since then, and also Black Mass, which was released a few years ago. Uh, this kind of weird Johnny Depp Goodfellas one. wannabe starring Johnny yeah. Depp, but the Johnny Depp acting under this uh, prosthetic mess that was like he was trying to perform through a chapati on his face or something. It was just terrible. Um, but this is completely different. This it is... was his chapati, and he'll cry if he wants to. Oh, my goodness. I'll get my coat. Okay, so this, Hostiles, swerves in the completely opposite direction of Black Mass. It kind of pairs away any kind of artifice and studio sets, you know, fiddly period detail. It's kind of open air, sweeping unvarnished nature, wind blowing through every shot kind of Western. Uh, it's set in the 1890s and stars Christian Bale as Joseph Blocker, this army captain who's been extensively involved in the colonialisation of New Mexico. And of course, the, the colonisation of New Mexico meant basically wiping out the indigenous population of Native Americans or you know pushing them back as violently as possible in order to clear space for the white settlers. Now, he is described by another character as being responsible for taking more scalps than sitting bulls. So he has this fearsome uh, reputation, lots of Native American blood on his hands. And he is charged on pain of uh, losing his pension with escorting a Cheyenne chief who's played by Wes Studi back uh, from a prison in New Mexico to his uh, original tribal lands in Montana, which is 1,000 miles north of where they are. The reason being that he, the chief is about to die. He is being extended this kind of PR style olive branch by the White House and they want to make Christian Bale uh, be the person to do it. So you have this uh, dynamic of mutual loathing between these two men that's further complicated by the, the arrival of this expedition that crosses paths uh, with Rosamund Pike's uh, character who is uh, this bereaved homesteader whose farm and husband and children have been destroyed, and this is in the, the film's prologue in the very opening scenes, uh, very, by this Comanche very, war. Very brutal, that is, as well. Actually. Very, very brutal indeed. And um, so you have this complex three-way dynamic of this party moving northwards, and it also involves a number of younger soldiers that have been recruited basically to make sure that this tinderbox uh, situation doesn't explode en route. Uh, two of the actors involved are Jesse Plemons and Timothy Chalamet, and here's the moment at which Christian Bale's character is recruiting them. Corporal. Ready for the journey, sir. Yes, you are. Lieutenant. 
Captain, I want to say what an honor it is to be chosen by you, sir. Give you everything I'm made of, you can sleep on it while you're here. Private! Pardon, monsieur, mais, uh, capitaine, mais j'ai um, a, uh, a question before we depart on our journey. Mm. As a new arrival to Fort Berenger, and quite frankly, with someone with less than ideal experience, I don't know why I don't. I'm just curious why, why you choose me. I didn't choose you. He did. So that's the kind of growly, gruff mood of the film, and it's that for two hours and then some. Now, this is a revisionist Western. This is a tradition that Scott Cooper's working in. And that's a style of Western that came in uh, during the 1960s when censorship started to relax a little bit. And filmmakers were able to sort of interrogate the founding myth of America, that there was this, you know, this idea of manifest destiny. People could just, uh, you know, go out there and claim this land because it was their birthright, you know, their kind of divine right to have this country to live in. And the hostiles of the title is basically everyone. It's the original uh, native population. It's the white settlers. All of these people are at each other's throats in this kind of ceaseless cycle of violence, begetting violence, begetting violence that was provoked by the original settling uh, act. Now, that's a kind of an interesting thing to dig into. I don't feel that the film does it with any particular rigour. It's just basically saying, yeah, so there are bad people on both sides and isn't this a very difficult place to live? And I just wanted it to sort of sink its teeth into this a little bit more. What really doesn't help is the Native American characters are very, very weakly written indeed. You know, you don't come away with any kind of sense. Christian Bale's character, really well-rounded out. Rosamund Pike's character is a total high point of this. You know, she's, um, she's, she brings a sort of a bruised and battered heart to the proceedings that's otherwise completely absent in all this machismo. Um, so I don't think it kind of grapples with the central issue particularly well. What it does do is transport you into this world very effectively. The, um, the cinematography of this uh, landscape, this ever-shifting landscape from deserts to plains to forests to mountains is completely wonderful. You know, you really get a sense that this, this land is something that's worth fighting over, this land that's been claimed and counterclaimed. I think it's uh, Masanobu uh, Takeyanagi. Yes, right, and he, and he is Scott Cooper's regular cinematographer mm. as well, so he's, he's worked with him before. And there's, there's a great sequence halfway through that involves Peter Mullen, Sporting a classic Peter Mullen beard. You know, I'm a general fan of Peter Mullen's beards. And um, this is a great Peter Mullen beard role. He has uh, helped settle this village on the edge of the mountains. And it looks as if the village has just sprung up overnight. And you have these, you know, wooden houses and general store and, you know, this kind of dusty street in front of these enormous, you know, ancient beyond imagining uh, landscape in the background. So it gets that feel of settling very, very well. Um it's also, we, you mentioned The Searchers earlier in your interview with Martin McDonough. It's, it draws a little bit from The Searchers as well, which, which is very much in that kind of mythic tradition of Westerns, a great John Ford film. The Searchers is a very, very famous final shot, which Scott Cooper very cleverly uh, replicates with a twist in this. The final shot in The Searchers, of course, of John Wayne being left outside just beyond the, thres the threshold of civilization. He's not welcome in the house, you know, in that domestic bliss that his characters helped to, uh, to make the, the, the Old West safe for. So it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, if, if you want um, a Western that's incredibly stern and self-serious and brooding, you know, this is it. It just doesn't engage with this issue of Manifest Destiny as uh, smartly or as colourfully as a film like maybe John McClane's Slow West, recently a brilliant, brilliant Western. Um, Tommy Lee Jones is The Homesman as well, an incredibly underappreciated Western recently, that just brought a little bit more colour and variation to chewing over 
just what this foundational myth of a country means and the kind of crimes that it's sweeping under the carpet. Also, I think, I mean, it did remind me, I mean, I thought it was very good. I thought, I thought uh, Christian Bale and Rosamund Pike in particular, I thought were fantastic. You know, really solid performances. And Wes Studi as well. I guess, you, you know, going back to what you were saying about the Native American characters, there was that kind of um, uh, shorthand for, uh, particularly in revisionist uh, westerns where the native american characters stand for dignity in some way yes and so they they use that shorthand with west studi's character i mean this chief uh who's been taken back to his homeland is dying that was the other kind of element of it and um christian bell's character doesn't want to do it but ends up doing it but it kind of reminded me a lot of you know things like outlaw josie wales yes it had that kind of uh um, melancholic feel that unforgiven uh has throughout but it also reminded me in terms of because the action is quite brutal at times i mean i was saying it's, about it's, the opening it's totally unsparing the the, the the action sequence it's in your face it's very it's very violent and it, it, it makes no bones about the violence it just doesn't kind of explain why colonial the colonial mindset how it's provoked this violence why it is that what the native americans are doing is different but in what ways that's bad it, well, it that's... just kind of shrugs and says look everyone in this situation is partly to blame which to me is not enough you have to kind of unpick it more diligently that's what i feel a film like slow west does really well or a film like the holmesman yes or even uh, uh, was it the missing which was the other film that tommy lee jones was in ron howard was it was that called the missing was it called The Missing? Oh, goodness. I, you've put me on the spot. That was another kind of okay. Western thing, but that was uh, with Kate Blanchett. Maybe I'm kind of forgetting the... No, someone will correct me. That's kind of... But you know, this is, it's, it's, there are people for whom this is really, really working. And you mentioned Unforgiven. I spoke to someone who saw this and they thought it was the best Western they'd seen since Unforgiven, which is mighty high praise. Yeah. I, well, I didn't think it broke new ground. That was my issue. I mean, hence the referencing of those films, even something like Soldier Blue, which was kind of very violent, just made about 1771. Um, it, it didn't really break new ground, but the photography is stunning. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you get used to all those Westerns shot in Monument Valley. And this one really does cover a, a lot of different landscapes. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, Every terrain that's in and, the American and part of a, For me, I read that, you know, the part of the hostiles was the environment as well. So it's kind of all these different factions, but also the environments as well is quite hostile. But anyway, uh, that's out. Uh, but um, in the little bit of time we got left, I just wanted to ask you about, um, you know, the films that you're looking forward to that are coming up soon in 2018, ones that you've seen that you think that we should all be looking out for as well? Yes, I'm going to choose three that I've seen already, which I, I cannot wait to watch again. The first is Phantom Thread, which is the new Paul Thomas Anderson film, starring what is, is supposed to be Daniel Day-Lewis's Final uh, final screen appearance um, as this uh, 1950s fashion designer in London called Reynolds Woodcock, who uh, becomes friendly with this waitress called Alma, um, and she becomes his muse and sets the very delicate, precisely rigged mechanisms of his fashion house completely askew. <laughs> and this relationship that the two of them have is, I mean, it's not, this is not a big Daniel D. Lewis, Gangs of New York or uh, There Will Be Blood style barn burner performance. It's, it's, it's something much more subtle and it's incredibly funny as well. So Phantom Thread, I cannot recommend highly enough. That's out in February. Uh, an animation called Mary and the Witch's Flower. Now, Mark, like myself, is a huge fan of when Marnie was there, the final, as as at, at time of talking, the final film from Studio Ghibli. Now, when Studio Ghibli went into, into shutdown in Japan, a lot of those animators left to form their own studio called Studio Ponok. And uh, Mary and the Witch's Flower is the, the first film from Studio Ponok, directed by the same director as, as, as Marnie Hiramasa Yonibayashi. And it is an adaptation of the uh, English children's story of A Little Broomstick by Mary Stewart. It is 
If you've missed that Ghibli look and that particular Ghibli sensibility of East meets West fairy tale, I mean, this just has it in spades. It's a beautiful, beautiful film, which I think is out in May. And the last of the three is You Were Never Really Here, which is Lynn Ramsey's first film uh, since we need to talk about Kevin, which I think was seven years ago Gosh, now. Yeah. Um, it is a hitman. I mean, look, it, you can describe it as a hitman thriller uh, starring Joaquin Phoenix. The, the, the clever thing about it is it withholds absolutely everything that a hitman thriller would normally give you. And it gives you absolutely everything a hitman thriller would normally leave out. And it's, that sounds like a very topsy-turvy way to tell a story like this. Um, Joaquin Phoenix plays this guy who is employed to um, get into child trafficking rings and rescue children for, for parents who want to see terrible things being done to the, 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 the people that did the kidnapping in the first place. But the way in which the film operates is it's like no other Hitman film you've, you've ever seen. I was completely blown away by this. It was at the London Film Festival last year and it is a ferocious piece of work and another great Joaquin Phoenix performance. And that's out in March. Great. Three to look so at. So there we are. We, I think we've got time to sneak one more film in. Right. Yeah. Okay. What, what have we got? Walk there? With, Walk me. with Me. Let's do Walk With Me. Okay. So let me find this in my notes. Walk With Me is a documentary by Mark J. Francis and uh, Max Pugh. Um, Mark J. Francis made a film about coffee called Black Gold about 10 years ago, which I remember seeing. Um, Pugh has directed documentaries as well, none of which I've seen. And it's about this um, Buddhist retreat in France called Plum Village which was founded uh, by a, a Buddhist monk who was exiled from Vietnam uh, during the, the war and is now 91 years old. And it's become this hub for mindfulness. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is the... Is Thich Nhat the, Hanh. Yeah. This is the name of the monk. That's the right. Monk, yeah, yeah. That's right. So the film is basically a behind-the-scenes documentary about how this retreat operates and what mindfulness is. And there is no authorial voice to it beyond this assumption that what we're filming going on here, be it the activities of the monks at the retreat or the visitors who come to the retreat to learn about mindfulness or the various trips that the monks make across to America to meet up with friends and family that they've, they've left to have this uh, this life of seclusion. Um, there's no voice at Beyond Look. We think that what we're showing here is interesting. There is a narration and it's provided by Benedict Cumberbatch, but the narration is just Thich Nhat Hanh's own writings from the 1960s and 70s performed in a, a, a very Cumberbatchian style, as this clip uh, ably demonstrates. When the storm finally passed, layers of inner mortar lay crumbled. On the now deserted battlefield, a few sunbeams peeked through the horizon, too weak to offer any warmth to my weary soul. I was full of wounds, yet experienced an almost thrilling sense of aloneness. No one would recognize me in my new manifestation. No one close to me would know it was I. <laughs> no, right. Yes, so, morning. The film, it's very difficult to fathom what it's trying to do because you have this uh, Benedict Cumberbatch talking you through the teachings, you have some behind-the-scenes stuff of what's going on in the village, but not enough. There's a little bit about taking that hand, but not enough. There's a little bit about what the monks do, but not enough. And I was just left feeling there's, there's just not enough for a full film here. You know, there's, there are other ways. To, the, the profundity, to me, remains on screen. I was completely left unenlightened by this film. And I want to experience, you know, a little bit about what mindfulness actually is, what it consists of. They have this thing where, 
you know, a bell rings every so often where you have to stop doing what you're doing and you just, just exist in the moment for a little bit. The film doesn't really ever instill that sense of, you know, being in the moment in, in, in the audience while I was watching, certainly not in me. I think, I mean, films like this, you want them to be meditative. And I, I did think of films like I Am Belfast, which I loved, and even films like Koyana Skatsi, which kind of in, envelop you. Yes, and right, or the Ron Frick films, like, uh, Baraka and Samsara as well. Uh, those, those are films where you kind of experience that for yourself. And that was the show, and this is the bit at the end, the podcasty bit at the end. And we were just talking about Walk With Me. Uh, yes. Kind of um, uh, Dances With Monks. Um, Centre parks with gongs center. Is, is what it is, basically. It, you know, it's it's strange. I was just saying before, uh, you know, when the when the show ended, that you, I, I in those kind of films, I want to be immersed in them. I want to get a sense of that tranquility. I want to get a sense of what they are gaining from it, because otherwise, they're just showing me what they're doing. And I think that uh, the difficulty was that for me was was just getting into it because the first half of the film where they are walking through nature and you kind of go that's fine you know walking with nature is great i'm just seeing people walking with nature i'm not immersed in this in any way from what i can remember there was very little of their pov of going through nature i mean it was the camera watching them and so the film then set set up a narrative that i i'm not sure that it needed and certainly when the monks then got to america it then kind of got split because some monks went to see their families and then others went into prisons to talk to juvenile delinquents. Uh, some sat on the road and meditated. These may have been the same ones, I don't know. And then there's another group that went off uh, and, and walked through a park very slowly. And I, I remember seeing a, a, an interview with uh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh when he was saying that the whole thing about taking the steps is that each step you take, you're effectively saying, I've arrived, I've arrived. I've arrived. So you're kind of constantly in the present. And the difficulty with that split narrative then was that I just thought, I, I'm not quite sure where the present is anymore. Yes, right. You're never you know? anywhere. Um, and that was. And weirdly, the slow walking thing is something that um, uh, a Taiwanese director called uh, Tsai Ming Liang has done incredibly well um, with Denis Levon, the um, French actor who does a lot of physical clowny performances. Um, they did some slow walking films together where he walks incredibly slowly through various world cities. And in fact, uh, Simon Liang's work generally has that sense of, you know, putting you directly into a moment, experiencing the the sounds and the atmosphere of a certain place, a certain time, a certain human interaction. And you do really feel that sense of stillness. There's another great film recently by an Irish director called Pat Collins called Silence. You know, these are not overtly religious films, but they're very, very good at doing that mindfulness thing of getting you anchoring you right in the present. Silence was about a sound engineer who was trying to record the sound of nothingness. He, would, he went back to, to his home, uh, his homeland in Ireland, going around with a big, you know, hairy microphone on the end of a stick and trying to find the quietest possible place and find out what nothing sounded like when it was recorded. And in, as a, you know, over the course of this quest, you find yourself intrigued by the same questions and enjoying the same uh, experiences of each location that he's enjoying. And you do feel transported and you do feel slightly enlightened and refreshed by the end of it. See, the other so it thing can is, be done. It, yeah, well, I can, again, I, at the end of the, uh, the programme, I referenced Mark Cousins' is, um, you know, I Am Belfast, which I found, found deeply moving and quite spiritual and, uh, and felt very, very present, even though you know, the, the, the tone changed. There was kind of reflective stuff. There were funny stuff and all the rest of it. And the, the thing with... I, here's, here's my difficulty with the whole... I was going to say, here's my difficulty with Buddhism. It's not really... It's not <laughs> that really Buddhist that. guy, these, these dudes are on. <laughs> yeah. Was that, that um, 
you know, they had a, a there's a Buddhist monk that I know who uh, was the uh, was an advisor on Doctor Strange, and he's got a great sense of humour, Thubten, and he was on set and he helped them with some of the the uh, uh, you know the, the spiritual kind of messages within the film and you know the whole thing in Nepal. He was helping out with all of that. Great sense of humour, really funny, and uh, for me, that whole thing about being present and being connected. Uh, it works through humor is such an important part of it for me that that's how I connect and I connect through people. So my kind of presentness and uh, connection with with uh, uh, the planet is kind of absolutely kind of having um, silent uh, contemplation is is very important. But I don't feel connected until I'm with other people. I like other people. And I like to hear what they have to say and. You know, conversations, when they're done well, are all in the present because I'm hearing what you're saying and then I'm responding to you right now. I'm not thinking about the past and I'm not thinking about the future. And that was one of the things in this. I was thinking, where's the laughter and where's the connection? I mean, it's great to be in a room full of sort of 10 or 20 people. And this isn't specific to Buddhism, of course, but I mean, you know, uh, people meditating, all that stuff is great. But uh, for me, it really only connects when... There are conversations and I wanted more conversations between them. There's one moment where I think um, one of the uh, uh, nuns uh, was cooking and she says, I'm getting bored of the cooking. I hate doing repetitive things. I get bored doing repetitive stuff. And I thought that's a really interesting thing to explore within a film like this, because, you know, repetition in terms of, you know, the form and the ritual is all important. And it kind of didn't go there. And I just uh, it left me kind of feeling a bit wanting, really. And also because Thich Nhat Hanh's own story is so interesting in that he was, you know, this this uh, peace activist uh, in Vietnam in the 60s and then got kicked out and then came to the West and then met um, uh, Martin Luther King. And, you know, I think people wanted him to get the Nobel uh, Peace Prize at one stage and he didn't get that. And, and as I think you mentioned, you know, he's 91 now and still quite kind of vital yes and you um, see him answering questions from visitors during the film and yeah. that was one of the things that, again that you wanted more of you know you could go that route do the film about him or you could do the film about the actual mechanics of running the place you know the people are walking around wearing uh merchandise from plum village you know with the the, the slogans on the mm. mantras i suppose you'd, you'd probably say uh on them now where did those come from you know what's what's the manufacturing of those you know what, are they being sold on site are people ordering them online it just sort of raises these questions about how this place operates that it doesn't seem to have any interest in answering what it to me felt like it wanted to do is do exactly the same stuff as a promotional video for Plum Village would be. And I don't think, you know, they've they've set out to make it as a promotional film, but it's kind of fundamentally not that inquisitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that to me, was a, a real stumbling block. Anyway, A Jupiter's Moon. Yes, let's, this is the one we didn't get onto. In, mm. in, this is, you know, we're in the first week of 2018. Uh, nothing remotely like this will be released all year. I'm absolutely certain. You know, this is a, a Hungarian uh, film from a director called Cornel Mondruxo, whose last film was White God, which was released back in 2015, I think, um, about this stray dog uprising in Budapest. And it was kind of this satire-inflected fantasy where the stray dog stood in for a disenfranchised underclass and the idea that, you know, polite society would push these people to the margins, you know, living, you know, figuratively around bins in alleyways. And the more you did this, the more likely you were going to have this Spartacus-like uprising. And the, the funny thing about Cornel Mondruxo is he has an incredible knack for 
coming up with images that you have never seen before. So, for example, in White God, it's this stampeding, you know, 200 real dogs stampeding through an empty city. And you're watching, you're thinking, you know, there's that kind of degree of visual imagination is really seen in a blockbuster that costs 20 times this to make. You know, he has a great eye for that stuff. And Jupiter's Moon sort of takes this and pushes it to the nth degree. It is, again, it's a fantasy inflected with satire about a Syrian refugee called Aryan who comes to the, the border between Hungary and Serbia. And recently Hungary's invested a lot in protecting the border, you know, lots of military there not wanting refugees to get over and, and, and get into the country. So this is the, the kind of topical backdrop against which the film plays out. And uh, Aryan begins his journey over the border. He fords a river and he's shot dead by a police officer on the other side. And his body falls to the ground and the police officer runs off to catch some other people. And then, strangely, he starts, some droplets of blood start levitating around him. And then he levitates up into the sky. He is kind of um, resurrected and starts spinning in free space and then falls to the ground again. And almost as if he is being, he's been, his, his fate has been divinely interfered with. He becomes this Superman-like figure. Now, uh, a doctor, Dr. Stern, who is working in the refugee camps, he hears about this guy and he smuggles him into Budapest with the view that he can be sold as being this kind of living miracle. He can introduce him to his wealthy clients for, uh, you know, and make a lot of money off the back of this guy's talent. Uh, Aryan, on the other hand, just wants to be reunited with his father who he lost in the border in the first place. So you have these two people working together with very different aims, but at the same time trying to steer clear of the cops. Now, there's... You know, obviously there's this kind of Christ-like metaphor for Ariane. Whenever we see him, he's normally got his eye, whenever he's flying rather, he's always got his arms spread wide in this kind of gesture of benediction. And there's this idea that, you know, uh, whatsoever you do to the, 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 the um, what's the phrase, whatsoever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. You know, we should treat these people with as much respect as we would accord, you know, Christ himself. So you've got the religious allegory. The title Jupiter's Moon is referring to Europa, the, the frozen moon that's in orbit around Jupiter, which is suggested in this preamble to the film. It could be a cradle for new life forms. And there's this idea that, you know, we're not exploiting the potential of new incomers to, to, to our continent. You know, we should be asking what these people can bring to us and, you know, working together rather than treating them as criminals. So it, it sets up all these strange kind of figurative metaphorical things running and just kind of bungles all of them. And it was really frustrating because... The visual stuff, the sensory stuff, the flying. There's a car chase here that would not be out of place in one of the better Bourne films. There's a shootout in a hotel and Mundruxo is just really great at staging this stuff. But it becomes so bogged down in, you know, 50 different metaphors. It's one of the few films that I watched and wished was stupider and it had tried less hard to be smart because the, the sensory stuff, the purely sensory stuff, is so transporting. You know, it would be great to come away from this film and, and say this is the great unheralded superhero film that you need to see it's not that it's not really like anything else either but it's it's, it's not what i wish it had been in that case it's time for dvd of the week hey robbie how's your chemistry of what is this the typical composition? Nitrogen, 20 to 90%. Hydrogen, 0 to 50%. Carbon dioxide, 10 to 30%. Oxygen, 0 to 10%. Methane, 0 to 10%. Flammable sprouts, 5 to 15%. Ha! That's right, it's Christmas flatulence. The toxic fog of which is slowly beginning to clear from the palatial homes of Wittetainese. The tree is looking decidedly mangy. We're still picking out Quality Street. Other sweet wrappers are available from the back of the sofa. And that half bottle of Irish cream is looking less inviting than it did a week ago. But let's not dwell on Christmas excesses, let's stare unflinchingly at a New Year's 
Betamax releases. So what are the audience picks for the first DVD of the week of 2018? David Walsh says 310 to Yuma, Stone Cold Classic. Sean Kirby says Detroit is just outstanding, tense and shocking. Will Poulter is evil personified and wins performance of the year. And Lee Morgan says, I thought... Una and Good Time were both superb. Hard to choose between them, but the important choice is yours, Robbie, and it is. I'm going to choose Detroit for the new release, great Catherine Bigelow film from last year, which has kind of dropped out of the awards conversation, sadly. But I would urge anyone who didn't see it in cinemas to catch up now. As was mentioned, great performances from Will Poulter and John Boyega as well. Terrific in it. For re-releases, 310 to Yuma after seeing Hostiles. I think, you know, Scott Cooper is a director who's done his homework in the past. This is a classic uh, who's done his homework with past westerns. This is a classic uh, western from the 1950s by Delmer Daves about this uh, this rancher who has to escort this criminal to uh, to justice uh, through this kind of gauntlet of his allies. And, you know, it, it, it is undoubtedly fed into Hostiles in a way that I think would be really interesting to revisit now that I've seen that newer film. That's it, the two. That's the two, and that's your lot. Thanks very much. Mark and Simon are back next week. Take care, all. <laughs>